This is Jocko Podcast number 388 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. General Mukayama told me that Colonel Hackworth never did things for personal gain. He always did things for the unit and for the soldiers. For the soldiers. That is the underlying theme that permeates about face. And it is the underlying theme that stuck with me as a leader. But people's strengths are often also their weaknesses. And perhaps doing things for the soldiers was Colonel Hackworth's undoing. In his interview with Issues and Answers, when Howard Tucker asked him if he had become too emotionally involved in Vietnam, he responded, one couldn't have spent the number of years I've spent in Vietnam without becoming emotionally involved. One couldn't see the number of young studs die or be terribly wounded without becoming emotionally involved. I just have seen the American nation spend so much of its wonderful, great young men in this country. I've seen our national wealth being drained away. I see the nation being split apart and almost being ripped asunder because of this war. And I am wondering to what end it is all going to lead to. So that's from the forward that I wrote for the book About Face by Colonel David Hackworth. And that idea that he instilled in me of caring about his soldiers, caring about my people first and foremost, that's what he's all about. He dedicated the book to all the doughboys, the ground pounders, the grunts, the American infantrymen, past, present, and especially future. And I wrote in that forward for About Face that the lessons that he learned and passed on in his book, I had used in combat and I had passed them on as well. Not only to the SEALs replacing me, but I passed them on to soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines at units throughout the country and around the world. But his lessons went beyond that. And I wrote about that in the forward. I continued by saying Hackworth's leadership, philosophies, strategies, and tactics can be applied by any leader at any level in any situation. I have taught your principles to countless civilian leaders in every industry imaginable and have seen them applied over and over again with extraordinary outcomes. So the principles that I learned from Hackworth and principles that I learned from my SEAL forefathers and from other military leaders and that are from the Army and the Marine Corps and principles that I learned from military history, all those lessons, they all originated in combat that's where they're from but we now know that they apply everywhere and we know that because we have seen them applied in every arena and when we see them applied as i said we see them applied with extraordinary results and one incredible example of that is actually within one of my companies echelon front 
my leadership consultancy, where one person has applied the principles of extreme ownership in everything that she does to take care of her soldiers, which is actually her team at Echelon Front. She uses the principles to pass on incredible knowledge to clients, to run our business, which is the premier leadership consultancy in the world. She uses them to raise her family, to run a household, to support her children, to support her husband, to take care of her friends, and to grow and create. In short, she uses these principles to lead. And she is the chief operating officer at Echelon Front. Her name is Jamie Cochran, and she's here with us tonight to share her, her perspective and her lessons learned. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I had to start with Hackworth <laughs> because you take the thread. The thread leads back to Hackworth. The thread of my thoughts lead back to Hackworth. And look, there's, there's a, a, other huge influences in there. Delta Charlie's in there. He's in the thread. Roger Hayden's in the thread. And there's a bunch of people that obviously know I can't recite them all, but that thread, like I said, all those lessons originated in combat. That's where that's where they come from. And so to see what we've done for the last 12 years and to see the way these things are applied and to see the results in every industry, dairy farmers, insurance companies, manufacturing companies, software companies, hardware companies, financial companies, just every industry, energy, construction, every industry, and they put these things to use. And it's been, it's always cool to track how they do, but it's really kind of cool to track you <laughs> and what you've done with these principles. And it's a really good testament to the way these principles apply outside of the battlefield. So let's, let's figure out how you got here. Let's start at the beginning, Jamie Cochran. Uh, where were you born? I was born in Utah, Orem, Utah, but when I was three, I moved up to Washington State, just south of Seattle, so that's really what I call home. And what what did your mom do? My mom, we actually moved up to Seattle for my mom's job. She worked for the United Steelworkers. She worked there for 35 years. She was Check. dedicated, yes. She loved, loved, loved helping people, and she loved her job. She was, uh, talk about work what, ethic. What was her job in the union? She was basically, I mean, back then they called him secretary. She was basically mm. a secretary, but she ran that place yeah. uh, for sure. <laughs> and she later she, in her career. You got those genes from her then, huh? <laughs> 100%. I learned a lot from her. Um, and she later in her career there, she ended up taking on a program that they had, Women in Steel. And she took that on and started actually teaching and training and setting up these programs for Women in Steel, helping them understand that there was leadership opportunities for them. So I learned a lot from her. And then what about your dad? What was he doing? Blue collar. Uh, he worked at an alum aluminum plant. So he actually worked at a company that my mom's union served. Uh, really harsh work environment. Uh, worked a lot of sh graveyard shifts and different kind of shift work growing up. Uh, so they were a big team because my dad was you know, working different shifts. My mom was traveling for work. And so they both worked full time. And so they really had to work together as a team. My dad dabbled in some construction, ran his own business for a little while, and then ended up back at like a, a plant, a, a aluminum printing plant. And then what, what about brothers and sisters? What do you got? I have one brother. He's nine years older than me. 
Uh, we were very close growing up, given our age difference. Still mm-hmm. very close now. Uh, he was a wrestler, mm-hmm. so all I wanted, to, all I wanted to do when I was little was just hang out with my brother. Uh, interesting, you know, we'd go to wrestling tournaments. I'd help roll up the mats, and then he'd come home and. <laughs> You know, wrestlers stink, and he would go sit in his room, and I would just want to sit next to him and hang out with him and his buddies. Like, I just really idolized him, looked up to him a lot. But g- girls weren't really wrestling. No. I mean, there was some, but not like it is now. Now there's, no. there's like, girls wrestling. Yeah. Oh, I never saw it growing up, but I was there every weekend. I was watching him wrestle. I mean, he, he focused in on one thing, different from me, very different from me in a lot of ways, but he focused in on one thing, and he put all of his time and effort in wrestling. Um, and so I grew up around that community. And then, so what were you into since you didn't have the wrestling outlet, which now I'm, like, kind of bummed out. <laughs> I'm bummed out in the world that you weren't a freaking wrestler. Uh, I would have loved that. We caught no. up to with you, too. We'll get to that yeah. later. I was one of those kids that I just needed to do a million things. When I was really little, I started out in gymnastics and I got very competitive in gymnastics and it's where I put all of my effort and energy. But by the time I got to middle school, I just wanted to try it all. So I don't I don't know how my parents kept up with me, but I was in every sport you can imagine. I started you know, going into plays and singing and just literally my schedule was constantly packed. I went from one sport to the next, to the next, to the next, all through high school. When did, how old were you started uh, gymnastics? I was three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was and little. What, what level did you make it to? Uh, a level 10, but I will Is level caveat. level 10 the highest level? No, I mean, it's it's changed a lot. So like level 10 back when I was little is not the level 10s you see now. The level 10s you see now are freaking beasts. Uh, I was not at that level, but I was competitive for, for my age. And I, and I continued gymnastics through high school. How many times a week or, yeah, how many times a week did you have to train gymnastics? A lot. Isn't it like when you get to level six or seven, you're training every day, right? Yes. I mean, we had sometimes four or five hour practices on Saturdays, um, just training. You know, we would do a round of a workout and then we would go through our routines and then we would go through a round of stretching and then back to a workout. I mean, it was pretty intense for fifth grade to be that deep immersed in in a sport. And you loved it. I loved it. And then I got to junior high and I kind of, it wasn't that I didn't like gymnastics anymore. I wasn't burnt out per se. I just wanted to try new things. And you can't really do that if you're competitive in gymnastics. So I had to adjust a little bit and stop competing competitively for the club that I was at and start just doing that for school so that I could do other sports. Did anyone talk you through that or did you just figure that out? I just figured that out. My mom and dad were so supportive. They never pushed me towards any of this. So me competing in gymnastics was not them being like, you have to do this. And up until that point, they had spent so much money and time (laughs) in me doing this sport. And they were always so supportive. My mom's one rule, at least when we got through high school, but this we kind of started this when I was little, was that you're not going to come home after school and just have nothing to do. They both worked, so I needed to have something to keep my time. So when I was younger, that was gymnastics. And then as I got older, it was like, you either get a job or you're going to play a sport, but you're not going to come home and just have a bunch of extra time on your hands. So they were good with it. Did you have competitive gymnastics in your high school? We did. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty lucky. Yeah. yeah. You must, were you kind of a slayer because you were like a club 
gymnast? Yeah, we had a couple a couple other club gymnasts. So we had it was just a lot of fun. We had this old German. His name was Gunter Bormann, uh, gymnastics coach. He was super strict, really tough, <laughs> but he was so such a great, just such a great coach. Um, and I got to in my junior and senior take on the captain role and really really fun opportunities. In with your that. junior and senior year, mm-hmm. was that was that rare for a junior to be captain? I mean, gymnastics teams are smaller, so not so much. Um, but we had a co-captain role when I was a junior, so there was a senior that was in that place as well. And then when I was a senior, I took on uh, the captain role again. And then what? And then what else were you doing? Volleyball. Played volleyball. Loved that sport, and I also played softball. Were you good at both those too? I was good at both those. I I was I was never the best. There was always people on the teams that I played at that were significantly better than I was and put a lot of their time and effort in training, but I played. I started and I played in both of those sports. Gymnastics is an awesome base sport because you just get strong, flexible, your proprioception is is outstanding. The discipline that it takes to do it, like that's a good sport to kick it off with. Yeah, I always tell, you know, my kids, my daughter didn't do gymnastics, but she did wrestling when she was little. And I think both of those sports are such good introductory sports for kids because you learn balance, you learn strength, and it's it's kind of a gut check. Like wrestling and gymnastics, like those practices are not easy. You are going hard and there's this level of discipline you learn at such a young age uh, that there's really good base level sports for, for kids. One thing, I don't know if gymnastics is like this, in wrestling, you're going to lose. You you know what I mean? Like, you're going to lose. And I think that's also good for kids to lose and have it be on you. Because, like, you know, your soccer team loses. You're kind of like, well, you know, Jamie missed the goal, and it's kind of her fault. And Echo didn't do a good job on defense, but I did awesome. Mm -hmm. You can kind of coach yourself through that, rationalize your – but in wrestling – Is it like that in gymnastics? I mean, it must be similar. It is because you compete by yourself. So you're out there by yourself. And so there's two scores. You get your individual score. I was an all-around gymnast, so I did all four activities. Um, And so I had my own scores that I was competing against others individually. But then all your scores also go to the team score. So similar to in wrestling. Mm -hmm. But you're out there by yourself. So if you mess up, you're out there by yourself. You have to finish the routine. Even if you know you stepped out of line and now you're, you know, there's no shot. You're going to get a good score on this. Um, so it was, it, yeah, I learned a lot. And people can have mental breakdowns with that kind of thing, too, yes. by the way. <laughs> I mean, like kids, sports, like step outside the line, everything falls apart. You got to, that's, it's so good to go through that stuff. Um, and then you mentioned the singing. The, obviously, you've got some pipes on you. <laughs> Yeah, I auditioned for a play in fifth grade. I had never done anything like that. And I auditioned for a play. It was a play that our the the direct the music director there had written himself. It was called Journey to Echo Mountain. And I auditioned. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I had no idea. I've never done anything like this. And it was a musical. And I got the lead. I got the lead. Her name was Molly. And I just kind of immersed myself in this new world in fifth grade of I'd never sang before. I'd never had any kind of lessons before. And now I'm, you know, in this play. And we so what happened with the journey to Echo Mountain? <laughs> what was the play about? <laughs> it was a it was a girl who like didn't have any friends. And her it was like this fantasy thing where like her favorite little stuffed doll became real and she goes on this journey with him to Echo Mountain to save his friends. It was a very interesting play, but it had all these songs. And so the first night, the opening night, uh, we were prepping in the morning and I was like 
I was coughing and I was having all these like issues. And my mom gave me old cough medicine. She didn't realize it was expired. So now I'm throwing up. <laughs> Opening day, first time I'm ever going on stage. And she run, takes me to the hospital just in the morning because I'm really sick. I found out I have asthma. So I just in internally just started to panic about this opening night. Get the inhaler, good to go, rush back, go on stage. And we ran, I think, another six shows over the next two weeks, and I was in love. I was like, this is so fun. My <laughs> oldest daughter, I remember she was, she was, they did Annie at the school play, and she was Annie. And her, you know, I was thinking, it was like, you know, you know, you, I was a little bit detached. I was in the Navy, so I show up whatever opening night. And, I, and I'm kind of thinking, wow, this is a lot of pressure. And she's in fifth grade or sixth grade maybe. And then she's got to get up on stage and like sing. And the whole, no offense to the other roles, but basically when you're, when you're Annie and Annie, that whole freaking show rests on your shoulders. Yeah. And she was 10 years old. And I was like, man, that's impressive. That's an impressive thing to be able to do that and step out there and let it rip with the pipes. Yeah. Uh, and so then you kind of got into that scene a little bit. I did. After that, I was like, I love this. Performing is awesome. And so I joined the choir and I did choir all throughout high school. I started taking vocal lessons. I started going to summer camps where we would go for like a month and we would, the whole summer camp was just for the sake of putting on a show at the end of that. And we would do musicals and plays um, every summer. So in the midst of sports, and that's what I meant, I went from one thing to the next to the next. I was also really wrapped up in singing and performing and just wanting to get better and find other ways to explore the performance zone. Where was this um, drive? This is a lot, you know? I, you see kids that are sitting around watching, playing video games, and there you are doing nine sports plus starring in the musical in fifth grade. Where's that coming from? I don't know. So part of it, I think, was my parents. There was kind of two really big themes in my childhood was work ethic. So my parents always drove home the importance of work ethic. You're going to show up on time. You're not going to miss anything. And you're going to do the job. And you're going to do it well. Um, and then honesty was another big theme in my childhood. So I had a good example of watching them. And then I had my brother who really honed in on one thing and loved that one thing. And I just realized, I don't. it wasn't anything specific, but I just realized at a certain age, it was probably around fifth or sixth grade, that I didn't want to just do one thing. I wanted to do it all. And I started to realize that I loved the challenge. I really thrived in like the, the constant change and the constant challenge of things going on. So I just, I don't know, I just wanted to be in everything. Were you that self-aware in sixth grade that you were like, oh, I really enjoy this challenge? I think so. I mean, I, th I think. I think I might be an idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think when I'm in fifth grade, I'm like throwing rocks at trees. Like that's yeah. that's the extent of my forward thinking. I'm thinking, hey, I bet I can hit that beehive with a rock and run away quick enough. Yeah. Do you think I can do it? Yeah, I think you can. Let's try. But I think the downside is there's a lot of people like my brother that honed in and became really great at one thing. And did I wrestle in college? Um, he did not. He he did for like the first year, and then he didn't. He didn't finish mm -hmm. college, um, but he was a great wrestler and he was really good at that sport and he put all of his energy and effort into it. And I was a little bit more like, oh, that looks fun. That looks fun. Let me try this. Oh, that looks cool. Let me do this. And I just always, I couldn't keep my attention. I just wanted to do it all. Um, you know, and that got me in trouble sometimes. For the most part, I just loved having the constant change going on in my life. And were you, you know, you were the captain of this team, you were the captain of the team, you were the lead in this. Were you always sort of, did you always kind of get elevated to 
sort of leadership roles as you were growing up? I did. I mean, I did student body government and things of that nature. I like I was I just talked a lot, if I'm being honest. Like, I, so like people knew me because I just talked a lot. Like, I always had straight A's, and then when it got to the point of like talking in class, I'd always get the two, like the the lower rating, because I just I was just a chatterbox. Uh, I would spend hours in my room. My mom has tapes of me doing interviews with myself <laughs> and playing different characters, like different accents. And I'm like, and now welcome to the show. And I was like, and I would just spend all this time creating and talking. And so I think I just, I was a little bit of just, I think I just was loud. And so people are like, well, okay, let's just put her somewhere just to manage that. And uh, so as you're going through high school, you're doing all these activities, do you have, do you start to see kind of a vision for what you want to do with your life as far as career goes? You know, not really. I, I, all I knew in high school was that I loved performing and I loved singing and that I really just liked, again, kind of the chaos of having a million things going on. And so all I ever thought I wanted to be was I'm going to move to L.A. when I'm 18 and I'm going to go and I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing and I'm going to write. And I'm just that that was my path uh, in high school, at least. And then I quickly quickly realized that that wasn't actually what I wanted. Well, so, OK, so you have this dream. You graduate from high school. And then, so do you, you go to college for music, right? Didn't you go to college for singing? Yeah. So none of my none of my family had ever gone to college. So going to college was a big deal. Uh, and my parents always were like, "You're going to go to college. Like you're going to do this." And I always wanted to go to school. I knew that I wanted to go to college, but I didn't really know where to go or like what I wanted to do. So I applied to a bunch of different schools. But my choir teacher at the time, who I really looked up with and looked up to and had a really good relationship. She was the one that was like, I think you should look at Azusa Pacific. And it was a private school, but she knew the the music director there. And she's like, I can get you set up with an inner, uh, an audition and you could maybe get some money to go to school. Because we didn't, ha- my parents had saved money, but not enough to necessarily send me to four years at a private university. Um, so I went and auditioned and I ended up getting a scholarship there. So I got into other colleges, but because of the scholarship, I chose to go to Azusa Pacific. Do you get to pick the song you're going to sing for your dish yes yeah I think What'd they gave you, you I, I, I couldn't remember I mean it was probably more classical because that's you know what they expected going into like a music program what kind of music were you listening to in high school everything so it was one thing that I I grew up with my dad who loves music I mean he had towers of just CDs back in the day like mm. you know just racks and racks of CDs and he would listen to literally everything I mean everything from like country to Whitney Houston to rap to like my dad had it all and so I got exposure to everything but the one thing that we really bonded over we still do we share songs like I'll send him a song he'll send me something he hears was just music music that had a story so I always loved the singer-songwriter like if there's a good story it didn't so much matter about the rest if there was a good if it made you feel something. Did you ever pick up a get box, a guitar or anything? No, I never did and I wish I had, but I think I was too, I was too busy. <laughs> so I could only manage just singing mm-hmm. and I was lucky to have enough people around me that could do the music part. Did you ever get in any trouble in high school before you get to college? You know, I didn't. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. You're over there just being perfect. Yeah, <laughs> I really didn't. I, I got good grades and we had... Our school system had a very interesting, they had like these secret high school students that would go to parties and like basically rat out other athletes. Yeah, and it was all all about the athletic clubs and making sure that the athletes weren't going to these parties. So you had like a 20 minute leeway. Um, And so 
I had that kind of keeping me from getting into trouble. And honestly, I probably would have gotten into a lot of trouble, except my best friend was like an angel and perfect. And she, you want to talk about leadership. She led me in high school and she's like, nope, you're not doing that. She was also an athlete. Um, and so she was very much in my corner and kept me from making lots of bad decisions. Did you ever, did you ever figure out who one of the rats was? No. <laughs> who takes that job on? Like that's risky. Yeah. That's a very strange thing. Yeah. So you go, you, there was parties, but you kind of would show up and leave basically. Yeah. I remember one time my parents dropped me off at this at this house and you could tell like when they dropped me off you could tell that this was a party. Mm-hmm. And my mom's like, "Okay, and you you're you're going to go to this and just a lot of trust, you know." And but they were suspect. And I was like, yeah, no, mom, it's totally fine. Like, it's just some friends getting together. And like, you can see the house. You're like, this is a raging party. And I went in and I spent like 15 minutes and I was like, all right, I probably shouldn't be here. It's total mayhem. So I called her and I was like, hey, mom, can you come get me? And she's like, oh my gosh, yes, we're up the street. We'll be right there. (laughs) She like waited up the road, just hoping I'd make the right decision. (laughs) So I was friends with all the people that partied, but I just kind of stayed out of that for, for the most part. I definitely went to some, but I... Do you think you do you think you didn't want to let your parents down? Do you think you didn't want to let your team down? Like this is in yes. kind of really positive peer pressure because most kids are getting peer pressure to do negative things. What kind of peer pressure was it? Just like, hey, I don't want to let my parents down. Yep, my biggest fear growing up, my absolute biggest fear, even to this day, was disappointing my mom and dad because they were such pillars in my life and like I just highly highly respected them growing up that I just didn't want to let them down like I was so afraid of that so I made a lot of good choices because I was like I don't want to have to show up and be like hey dad I screwed up are you guys having dinner together together every night like but your dad's working shifts like how is this really tight family unit and this this high level of respect for your parents how did they how did they formulate that I think a couple things. One, my parents are best friends and they are a true partnership. They carried the load together. And so um, they just they just work together so well. My mom would travel and my dad would have to take on like feeding us every night. And yes, we had dinner most nights at the table. And sometimes it was in the midst of things, but it was like, hey, at 6.30, be home. We're going to have dinner at the table. Um, and my mom would go out of town and my dad would do like seven days of different ground beef like we're, we're having hamburger helper then spaghetti then sloppy joes then goulash like variations of ground beef but my dad <laughs> I goulash in a while that was, that was a big one at my house yeah. to get that goulash yeah. together bro yeah but he would he would manage food when my mom was gone and when he worked shift work my mom was there and i think what i'm very very lucky is that I was a busy kid, I had a lot of stuff going on, and yet I can't remember a time, and it had to have happened, that, um, but I can't remember a time where I didn't have both parents, or at least one parent, or in the very rare occasion, they both couldn't be there, they'd send my brother. They're like, you're going to support. So I always had someone in the stand there rooting for me that just wanted the best for me. And I think um, that cultivated like a very, we're, we're an oddly close family, even now into adulthood. Uh, my my dad and my brother are best friends, and they do so much together. Even now, we're very very close. I think compared to a lot of other families. Yeah, that's I I've I talk about the fact that I've told so many parents like, hey, listen, your kids are gonna get this rebellious streak. They know they gotta leave the house. They don't want to do it when when they're so close to you. So they're gonna set, do some things to create a little separation. Just expect this, but you didn't even have that. No, I mean I hit my rebellious stage in in college because I was. 
I wasn't near them anymore. <laughs> so I went through that whole stage when I got to college and I was living in LA and just trying to figure out who I wanted to be, what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So you don't remember your Adish song, <laughs> but you knocked it out of the park. Yeah. You get the big scholarship to Azusa, what is it, Azusa? Azusa Pacific, yeah. Azusa Pacific. Yeah. And now you're leaving your family. Did your mom cry? Did you cry? Did your dad cry? Was it total? I'm, I'm just picturing like just total mental breakdown in the fam. Uh, we drove from Seattle to California. Oh, they're driving <laughs> you. Hell yeah. yeah. They're yeah. like, we're driving Heck her. yeah. And I like slept the whole time, you know, because I'm young, like uh-huh. whatever. My They drove the whole time. They get me set up in my apartment. And my roommates in my first year in this dorm, we lived on campus. It was a small room, three beds, and like a dresser, tiny. I mean, probably the size of this room. And uh, both of them were from Okinawa, Japan. So there was just an interesting dynamic right out the gate. They helped me move in, and they've got to get back. So we go to this parking lot. My dad gets my car off the back. He had it on a trailer. And like gave me a hug and drove off. And I remember sitting there in the parking lot by myself, like, what have I done? I am now in Los Angeles by myself and my parents just drove away. And in the moment, we kept it kind of together, but my mom lost it in the car. I lost it in the car, separate of each other, uh, just feeling like, what What have I done? And so now you got two roommates from Okinawa? Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of random. Were yeah. they sisters or something? They were. I, they came from the same high school. Okay. Um, but yes, they were wonderful. They were wonderful roommates. Is that college meant for like performance? Because you're going there. You're going there to major in singing. I went there, and my major was vocal performance. So Yo. I was a part of the women's choir, which you have to be your first year, and then there's opportunities to move into some of the other. Uh, choir units um, and I was taking primarily music classes and at the I always tell students now like just go do your general education because you don't know what you want to do mm. and I made the mistake of I like tell people go join the Marine Corps for yeah. four years <laughs> <laughs> and then you figure out what you want to do perfect <laughs> but a lot of people make the mistake just like I did where I went and I'm like okay I'm a vocal performance major I'm gonna take all music classes I'm just gonna get deep into music composition and all these different things and then about six months in I realized I don't want to do this anymore. Because uh, I realized that I loved singing, but I didn't really necessarily like like learning and the components and the teaching and the technical side of it. Mm-hmm. And that I didn't need any of that to go perform and sing. You just and need so, that microphone. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so you're going through that decision process. Again, you're, you're aware for a young person, even when I was, thank God I was in the Navy, because God only knows what I would've been doing if I wasn't. But you're now 18, probably 19 years mm-hmm. old, you take this all these music classes and you realize you like singing but you don't want to learn about sheet music or whatever it is music theory so then what do you do you decide you're going to change majors yep i decide i t- i as part of my general ed i did take a marketing class and i was i loved that class and it started to open my eyes to like oh okay you know what maybe there's something i kind of like event planning i like marketing i like this other world i also started to realize that uh, i was not even with my scholarship i was not going to be able to afford to stay at azusa pacific because we had basically depleted my college saving funds to go to the, that first year it was not a, a, a cheap school mm-hmm. and so i was realizing that i was going to have to go in significant debt it, to stay there so i was like all right i'm changing majors i'm going to move schools so i moved after the first year and i started summer school classes to try to catch up because I've now changed majors. Mm. Uh, 
right after I left Azusa and I went to Cal State Los Angeles and I changed to communications and public relations. What's where's Cal State Los Angeles? Kind of East LA, um, not far from like Pasadena. Okay. Um, about 15 minutes like east of that. And so do you move in an apartment with new people, obviously? Yeah, so really kind of crazy twist of fate. I showed up and the apartment, the dorm that I was supposed to stay in was a four bedroom dorm. So eight girls and like this common space. And all seven of the eight, so the other seven were on the soccer team together. And then me. So I show up and I go to, to, to move in and they've moved me to a different room. So I went back just to get a new key and I didn't, I didn't wanna cause drama. I was like, no, I just need a new key so I can get into this new room that they've shifted me. And it created this whole whirlwind. And she ended up saying, no, I'm gonna move you to this other apartment with one of our resident assistants. And so I moved in uh, with this girl named Diana who ended up becoming my best friend, but she didn't, she didn't want me moving in with her. <laughs> um, but uh, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm I'm now it's just three girls in a two bedroom, and it turned out to be a cool twist of fate because it led me to a job where I worked at the college as a resident assistant like the next quarter, um, and just cultivated some friendships I wouldn't have had if I had been in the soccer house. The soccer house. So you get moved into this new place, and now you're studying communications and public relations. Mm -hmm. What is what is what does it mean when you study communications? You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like, know. Like what, 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 who, 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 what job do you get hired into if you study communications? You get like, I mean, are you a newscaster? Are you no, uh, writing? No, I didn't take the journalism route. I took the public relations route. So really, you know, uh, it was a component of marketing, but Got not it. the marketing degree. Um, it was a little bit more towards, you know, learning how to communicate, how to tell a story, how to, you know, you, I could have gone and worked at like a PR firm. What I loved at the time is I was a resident assistant. And so what I was doing on campus, in addition to just the regular duties there, was I was planning events. And there's a component of the communications degree that sets you up for that because you have to market and publicize these events. And there, it just gave me some exposure. I, I didn't know what I wanted to be. So I kind of landed there haphazardly. Mm -hmm. And it stuck and I really loved Cal State because the classes were smaller so I got to know my teachers more and I just started to cultivate relationships there that I hadn't the year prior. And you're out of money kind of, so you gotta yeah. be working. Oh, I was broke. I was so broke. I remember pulling into a gas station, trying to get back to campus and like going up to the counter and being like, I have $3.23 on point four. <laughs> you know, my parents made sure that I had food. So I had the campus meal plan and I had housing and everything else was up to me. Um, and so I ended up getting a job initially at a restaurant and I started as a hostess and then worked my way up to various positions there. And I worked there all through college. Mm -hmm. and what then restaurant? I, uh, McCormick and Schmick's. What kind of restaurant is that? Like a fish house, yeah, like a seafood. They had, yeah. And did you end up as a waitress? Mm -hmm. What did yeah. you learn from that? A lot, because I started as a hostess, and then I became a waitress, then the cocktail waitress, so I worked in like the happy hour. So you just get to meet all sorts of different people. Uh, not only the people that you work with, but the people you're meeting on a day-to-day. -day. You have to manage emotions. If something, if an order gets wrong, people treat people in the service industry terribly. Uh, others treated me great, but I had to learn a lot how to like control my emotions and like show up on time. And it was it was a great job. I loved it. I was there for a long time and I had a couple key relationships there that were really important to me in my development as far as like being mentors. So you end up, how much do you make a night as a waitress? <laughs> uh, I think I would, I mean, sometimes 
I would walk out of there with some pretty good cash if it was a busy night because I would work happy hour. I would take extra shifts, yeah. um, maybe a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. Some people become kind of career waitresses sometimes because you can make good money. Well, and this was before like people were doing the 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 guaranteed twenty percent. Like nowadays, I feel like it's on everything. You know, mm. they didn't have the little key at the bottom that suggested the amount. So <laughs> sometimes you get totally stiffed, and other times, you know, people were really generous. But I relied heavily on the the cash tips. That was a big part of my income. And then you also were working as an RA. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yep. So are you dealing with freaking just yep. mayhem? Mayhem. Yeah. Just people puking on themselves. Just drinking yeah drugs it was an interesting leadership lesson because it was they weren't dorms it was apartments so it was almost like just managing apartment complex but quarterly we had to do like review we had to go and like evaluate and do walkthroughs and it was my job to like go in and see if how they're living and whether or not they're violating any rules if i was on duty then i'd have to go let people in in the middle of the night you were on duty for like three or four days like around the clock so they people would call you at 2 a.m and be like i locked myself out and you have to go get them situated um so it was a lot of like management and it's your peers too. So parties are happening and you've got to go like kind of shut them down or noise complaints. You became the rat. Totally. <laughs> <became> the rat. <laughs> I was a pretty cool rat. But yes, I had to go shut some of those things down. Um, and then in addition to that, it was our job to put on events every every couple weeks. We do these different events. Um, what kind so of events? We One of my favorite events there, we started with another friend of mine who was another RA, and we called it the Underground. And it was like oh, a yeah. show oh, of yeah. like poetry and music and like dance. And it was just like this cool, we turned this uh, common area that was, you know, you can think like fluorescent lights, kind mm. of whatever. We turned it in this like cool, dark underground like club, and we just had different performances and artists come and perform. Did you perform? Yes. Singing? I sang, yeah. Were you in a band? I did have a band in what college. What was the name of the band? Uh, it, it was just me, Jay, Jay Smith. <laughs> oh, because your maiden name is Smith? Yeah. Did, but you can't play any instruments. No, but that was like... Just acapella. We just, no, no. We, <laughs> I had a band. We had a stand-up bass. We had a guitarist, a, a, a drummer. We had backup singers. We were you went doing performed. covers or were you doing uh, No, my own stuff. Where is it? Where's the MP3s? Let's go. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Uh, no, we did. I mean, we we had some covers, but for the most part, we were writing our own music. And we would just, we would link up on, on campus and we would just jam. And then over time, we were like, we should do a show. And so we went and played a little show. And then we, we, we did a couple cool gigs. It was fun. But did you do any recording? Not with that band. We didn't record any of that stuff. I was also going to a studio in um, Hollywood and doing some like uh, vocal demoing. So I would help write a song or I would potentially, or they would give me a song that was written in and I would demo it so that artists, like the, the people that I was working for, Oh, just like a music company of some kind? Yeah. So I got I had a couple friends that were in that and so I would go in the studio and I would record a song that they were gonna send off to a real artist who was already famous to hear what the song would sound like. So I would demo the song. Um, and then on some cases I was asked to do like little choruses or things on, on people's other so I was recording but not for my own stuff, not my own songs. Are you getting really. paid? Not for that, no. Just doing it for free. Just doing it because. Can we hear your backing vocals on anything (laughs) on MP3 right now? Not that's like out. I mean, I have them. But no, you're not on the backing vocals of some band that we could listen to. 
I don't think so. I mean, possibly. I mean, I did a lot of like stuff, but this was all like local stuff going on. It wasn't like, you know, some big hit song. Have you sang any jangles that are commercials that we've heard? No. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like Geico or something? You're just in there getting it. (laughs) That would have been where the money's at though. (laughs) So, all right, so this is what you're doing. This was your rebellious phase was you were like starting the underground as an RA. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying I had some fun in college and and maybe realized uh, was maybe happy when I met my husband and he didn't drink to kind of like sh- shift because it wasn't ever natural to who I was, but it's hard to be in LA in that culture and not get caught up in some of just the chaos and drama of that culture. Mm. It's not a it's not a great place for young women. And you I realized that pretty in general? early. No, not college, the music industry. Like I was, oh. I wasn't, I had enough of a foot in that world that I really quickly realized like, I don't think that's the path I wanna go down. It's kind of crazy. It is crazy. So you're in college, you get, you go there for three more years. Do you get it done in four years? I did, yeah. I went through, I did summer school every summer to make up for the year of vocal performance classes I took <laughs> and I graduated on time. And then what's next? What happens? I, so it's now 2006, uh, yep. you graduate from college? Yeah. Okay. And my best friend, we ended up getting an apartment in Pasadena and a one bedroom that we shared. And she was like, hey, I have this idea. She went to school for, uh, she had her master's in education, brilliant. And um, she was like, I have this idea. Let's go be flight attendants so we can just travel the world and like just be single. And I was like, awesome. So we, <laughs> I was like, we're gonna do Dude, that. Dude, that's the plan. I like the plan has yeah. two sentences. <laughs> we're gonna travel the world and be single. <laughs> okay. We were both single at that time and we were like, all right, we're just gonna go do this. And so we went, it's actually really hard to become a flight attendant. Like people underestimate that. Mm-hmm. Not only like the interviewing process, but then the training is significant. Um, and so we, ended up becoming you know getting the opportunity to go to this training and in between when we got the hey you you know you're hired and the start of training I went on the first date now with Flynn who is now my husband and so all of a sudden like this whole I'm gonna be single kind of took a little pivot (laughs) Um, and she found out like right before we went that she was pregnant so like all of a sudden this travel the world, we're gonna be single and just living up our life. Like both of us made this big shift of like, okay, I guess things are gonna change. Um, but I went through with the training and became a flight attendant. And how long did you do that for? Mm-hmm. Six six months. I The training is about eight weeks. And then, uh, which is, it, it's, it's difficult training. Like people really don't get it. Like when you go, when you go on your next flight, treat those flight attendants with care because they're, the parameters in which they have to operate on that is so strict. And so when they're asking you to put your seat up or your tray table, there's reasons and safety protocols for why. Um, And they've trained to know every piece of the plane for every plane that they could possibly fly. Um, So it's just an interesting dynamic. And when you- Hold on, so there's a reason I gotta put my seat up when we're landing? Yes. Can you tell me what that reason is? Yeah, so- Because it's like a two inch situation, I know, (laughs) but the research shows Takeoff and landing is the most dangerous time okay. on a plane. It's it's when you're most likely to crash. And if you do crash, what they're trying to do, why you have to put your seats under and your tray, tray tables up, is create enough uh, leeway so that if you had to get out and evacuate, you could do that safely without things being in the way and causing trip ha- hazards. Cool. I always do it. I kind of like, you know, you're talking about waitresses and waiters and flight attendants. Like, I always think they've got 
like they're having a bad day. That's the way it always <laughs> seems to me. Because I know I wouldn't. You know, I've worked in restaurants, and it's it's a hard job. I've never been a flight attendant, but I can just you know you just need to watch one person be a jerk to a flight attendant, and yeah. you're like, dude, just leave this person alone, please. Yeah. They get out of control. So I always try and be cool, but I've always wondered why this seat needs to be up two inches. Like, okay, but now we know. I, I knew it was for that safety protocol, but still. Um, okay, so you're doing that. So I become a flight attendant, uh, but by the time I became a flight attendant, you have, when you're first, you know, start off, you are at the bottom of the totem pole. You have no seniority, and so you basically are on call for several days. You don't know where you're going, how long you're going, what you're doing. You don't even know what, air, I mean, I'm based out of LA, but there's three different airports we serve, four. And so you could just get called to say, hey, we need you in Burbank in three hours, um, and so forth. And at this time, I'm kind of living in San Diego because we made this one bedroom apartment, the crash pad, for eight other flight attendants. So you you walked into our apartment and there was just mattresses and all eight flight attendants, because we couldn't afford this rent anymore, uh, paid in to help cover this rent. So your, I had the your option. Your best friend gets an F for planning. Yeah. I was stoked on the two sentence plan. I revoked that. I had like, in my mind, I'm like, I would, I had the option of either going back to the crash pad or driving two hours back to San Diego. So that's what I did. I just, every time I finished, even if it was a 16, 20 hour day, I would take a nap in my car or go shower at the 24 hour fitness and then drive back to San Diego. Okay. And then you're, now you're, you got Flynn and Flynn's in the Navy at this point? Yes. He was in butts. So we got married. Uh, no, actually, yes, he was. I was a flight attendant after we got married. the The whole time we were engaged, I was a flight attendant, and he was just in the in the regular navy. Okay, and then, but you know, he's going to buds. You find out he's going to buds. Well, yes. When he first asked me to marry him, he, you know, it proposed or whatever in the car. Um, <laughs> it was basically like, Two hey, out of ten. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was basically, hey, I'm supposed to go to Japan in March. And I'd like you to come with me. And I was like, okay, well, what does that mean? He was like, well, you can't really come with me unless we're married. And I was like, so are you asking me to marry you? He's taking he's the like, indirect <laughs> approach. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, yeah, pretty much. Um, he made up for it later. He did a whole thing. But that's basically when I agreed to marry him. And at that point, he had orders to go to Japan um, where he was going to be deployed for two years. And that was going to be his last deployment. And he was going to get out. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, he had submitted a package to Buds. He was a little old. He was kind of on that cusp. Um, and so I don't think he told me because he just wasn't sure if he'd get in or not. But he had submitted the package to Buds and was was waiting to hear. And then he found out. So he found out about a month before we actually got married. Um, and w what's going on with the flight attendant? Yeah, so I was just, you know, just running up to LA every couple weeks or every couple days um, and flying. Um, and I ended up, so I, I really did love that job, but it was difficult. It was very difficult, especially kind of commuting back and forth, which I made it harder on myself because I did that. Um, and there was just a lot of lessons. I had some crazy stuff happen on planes. And uh, I had just gotten to the point where I don't know that I was fully into it. Like I was already seeing like there's there's an end here. Um, and I ended up, I ended up like shortly after we got married, I got fired. <laughs> 
I got fired. <laughs> How come you got fired? Well, they have really strict policy on uh, attendance and tardiness. Like you, you, three strikes, you're out. And I could give you all the explanations or reasons why I was late three times. I was basically late for three times. The planes went off in time. It was no big issue. But um, two times I was late. One time I called out. And I could tell you in detail why and all of that might make a ton of sense. But the reality was... I did not have any relationships there. I did not know my supervisor. I didn't, couldn't even tell you his or her name. Um, it's not an office where you go into. So if you want to get to know your supervisor, you've got to like make an appointment and plan to go to the airport at some point and meet with them. And I didn't have any of those relationships. So despite the fact that I was a good flight attendant and I got really good ratings, like customer ratings, and I had dealt with several major emergencies very well, um, Despite that fact, I just hit the three strikes and I could give you all the reasons and ex explanations, but they're just excuses. And the reality is, is I had no one to really call when it got to that point. And if I'm being honest at that point, I was kind of like, it's okay. I'm kind of ready for something else. Because you already married at this point. Yeah. Okay. So now you get married and is that when Flynn starts buds? Yeah. We got married Friday afternoon. Uh, evening. Uh, we went down to Arizona for a couple days. Uh, Scott's uh, no. I don't know, not Scottsdale. Flexed. Sedona. Yeah, Sedona for two days and then came back and he started Buds on Monday. And how was that? Um, just a really quick and rapid introduction to the Navy. What did, did you know anything about the Navy? Nope. I mean, my parents have a lot of, um, you know, gratitude for our military members. I grew up in a house that really valued our military members, but all I knew about the military, I didn't know anyone personally who served. All I knew about it was like what I learned in history and what I saw on TV. Did you know what a SEAL was? No. Mm -mm. Did you know what BUDS was? Obviously you didn't. Nope. Okay, so he starts BUDS, and so now are you are you fired at this point? I continued as a flight attendant for like another two months, but okay. it was shortly after. Yes. And then you guys are living here in San Diego. Yeah. And Coronado. he's going through buds. What does it look like when? What does it look like from the outside when your spouse is going through buds? Yeah. Which is basic SEAL training if you don't and know. And we were the only ones married. I don't mm -hmm. think anyone else was married at that time. So that was a little bit of like a unique scenario, anyways. But I had like. I had this vision of like what it was gonna be to be like newlyweds. And I'm young, like I was I was 22, I turned 23 like a week after we got married, so I was young. And I was like, oh, we're gonna like travel and we're gonna hang out on the weekends, we're gonna go down on the beach. We lived a block from the beach, like a block from the Hotel Dell. And I was like, we're gonna spend all this time doing all these fun things and meeting new people. And very quickly I realized we're not doing any of that. <laughs> That uh, yeah, I was lucky if he came home. He wasn't supposed to come home, but we were so close to the base that he came home most nights, even though he was supposed to stay on base. I think I can say that he's he's long out. I don't. I don't. I, I think you actually could go home. It's just that at the there's probably some nights he wasn't supposed to, but but the officers pretty much were allowed to go home, and even married guys were allowed to go home. So it was probably what 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 makes it not smart is you know you get done at midnight and you yeah. got to be back there at four o'clock in the morning yep. and so it's going to take you 15 minutes to get off base you know 10 minutes to get home park the car get upstairs you just cost yourself 40 minutes there and then yeah, you, know, you got to get up earlier you got to make sure you're gonna be on time so you got to leave extra early so instead of sleeping four hours you're sleeping three hours and so that's probably where it seemed like he shouldn't be coming home and he was probably like I shouldn't be coming home and he probably shouldn't have been coming home but he did 
Well, I remember one morning he woke up in a panic because Brendan, his his best friend going through Bud's, called him and was like, hey, they just like pulled us out. Get here now. And so he like threw his stuff on and he rushed out and he was the OIC. And so like he was supposed to be there and he like rolled in and act like he was like outside on a phone call and like totally came under the radar. And like they didn't know that he was not on base, but he was supposed to be there. So there might have been times where he was supposed to and he's still kind of. Um, but it was interesting. He would come home and like just sand in the bed constantly. Like he would wake up and like 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 startle me. Like just you know whatever it was, he was sleep deprived and he would wake up like in these like massive uh, like fits. Um, it just was interesting. And then the weekends, like we weren't doing any of the stuff I thought we were doing. He's definitely not like let's go to the beach. Yeah, no, <laughs> let's go swimming. <laughs> he don't. He wanted nothing to do with getting wet and sandy. So we weren't going to the beach. Um, and we ended up spending most of our Saturdays in the first couple months painting helmets at his like buddy's house. Just me and like these three other guys going through buds painting helmets all day. And that's where, that's where you met Brendan? Yeah, yeah. Brendan with, was living with a guy named Rob and the, we would just go to Brendan's house and barbecue and paint helmets. Good times. Yeah. This is exactly what you signed up for <laughs> at 23 yep. years old. Yep, I was on stencil duty. I was very good with the little details, yeah. So that, that's where you're starting to understand what's happening and then was there any highlights that you remember? What was what about Hell Week? How was it after Hell Week? It was great. Um, so Brendan's mom had flown in town, and she we like spent a day or two together before uh, Hell Week was over, just kind of waiting for them to call and say I made it. And you start to feel pretty good after Wednesday because mm-hmm. I kept thinking like, what if he comes home Tuesday? Like, how do I respond? And then Wednesday, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm out. Um, Wednesday passed, and th- we got into like midday Thursday, and I was like, okay. I feel pretty good about this, but you're, I'm nervous for him. And Brendan's mom was there. So we ended up just kind of hanging out in Coronado. And then Friday, I don't remember what time it was, but at some point he called and he was like, I made it. Um, and he was like, I just remember he was like, hey, can you bring us milk milkshakes? <laughs> and he was delirious and he sounded like a like seven-year-old, like, can you just please bring us milkshakes? I was like, sure. So Brendan's mom and I went and got these chocolate milkshakes and we went to base and we sat in the back of his truck and it's Rob, Brendan and, and, uh, and Flynn and then Brendan's mom and me and we're talking and one guy would be talking and the other two would be falling asleep. Yeah. And then the other one would wake up and say something and then the other guy would start to fall asleep. Um, and very quickly you realize like, man, they have been through something crazy. Cause Brent, I mean, Brendan couldn't walk. He had rashes everywhere. Um, and it just like, you, you saw it like firsthand. It was like, this is crazy. And then obviously they have to leave and I don't get to see him again for like 24 hours until they're medically cleared. But we yeah. did drop off those chocolate milkshakes. And they were stoked. Yeah. Uh, and then what about the rest of Bud's? Was there any issues? Did he, did he get rolled back or anything? No, nope, he did good. He, he made it through all of that on, on track. Um, he obviously, you know, he was an officer, so he had to go through the extra training. So he mm-hmm. ended up going to a different class than what he went through buds with. Um, but no, uh, everything ran smoothly. And then he gets done with buds and, and he gets orders. Where did he, he go, team one? Team one, yeah. And, and now do you know what's going on? Like, nope. <laughs> 
All I know is that he would be gone for three weeks, home for two days, gone for a week, home for two weeks. You know, and like we obviously talked about what he was doing, but I remember at one point I was like, hey, do me a favor. Don't tell me you're leaving until like two days before because it would always be this game of like, hey, I'm leaving in a week. And then you come home the next day. He's like, actually, we're leaving tomorrow or (laughs) I'm leaving in three days. Actually, it's two weeks. And it was always changing. And I was like, okay, I'm trying to handle like all this other stuff I have going on in the midst of like, when are you going? What are you doing? Where are you coming? When are you going to be home? And so I was like, just tell me two days before you have to leave and then tell me like the day before you're coming back. And then that was just our, our deal. And so what are you doing at this point? <clears throat> so after, after I got fired, uh, I ended up getting a job at a hedge fund um, and they were in downtown San Diego and they worked off New York hours. So I had to be there at five and they were done at three, which was awesome in San Diego because then I had all afternoon. I mean, he wasn't coming home till late anyways, um, just to myself and kind of do whatever I wanted in in San Diego. Um, And I was just basically an overpaid administrative assistant for them. Um, uh, So I I liked that job, but it was not very fulfilling, was not challenging at all. Um, And so before I had taken that job, there was this position that came up at San Diego State University that really piqued my interest. But I looked at the job description. I'm like, I wouldn't qualify for this. Like what they wanted, I didn't have. Um, And so I didn't apply and I took this job instead. Um, And then a year after I served at the hedge fund, they moved back to New York and I obviously wasn't going to go with them. Um, So I started looking again and lo and behold, that position at San Diego State had come up again, which I guess could have been a red flag that like... (laughs) Someone didn't make it after a year, but whatever it was, I thought, you know what? There's no better time than at least trying. So I applied for a job at San Diego State. And then you got the job. I did, yeah, uh, to my utter surprise. How come you're so surprised? Because the requirements of what they wanted, they, they preferred a master's, they wanted several years of experience. I just didn't think that I qualified. And I submitted my application. I ended up getting a screening call with their HR director. And I got off the call and I was like, Flynn, there's no way they're going to hire me. And then I got a call and they were like, hey, we want you to come in for a panel interview, which I had never done. A group of like nine people sitting around a table, all from various uh, parts on campus, asking me like intricate scenario-based questions. And I'm just sitting there, you know, going through this. And I left that interview and I was like, Flynn, there's no way they're going to hire me. And then two days later, I got a call and I had an interview with who the, the woman that ended up becoming my, um, was going to be my direct supervisor if I got the job. And I got off that call and said, there's no way they're going to hire me. <laughs> and like a week later, they offered me the position. That's- and this whole time, I was pregnant and hiding it because I was afraid that that would <laughs> oh. impact my, my uh, potential. Okay. Yeah. So your integrity just took a hit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did tell her, I told her in the final interview, I was like, hey, I just have to come clean. <laughs> but yeah, I was three months pregnant with my oldest. Okay. And so now what's going on? Flynn's now in a workup at a team, getting ready to go on deployment. Mm-hmm. And that's probably when I met him for the first time, putting him through those workups when I was working at Trade. Matter of fact, that is when I met him for the first yep. time. Or he still has notes in his notebook. It says JKO brief, <laughs> the Jocko brief. And it's the laws of combat, yeah. which is, uh, is awesome. <laughs> that's rad. Uh, so now you, you take this position. What are you doing in this new position that you're at at San Diego State? I was a programs coordinator, so I was responsible for all of the programming on campus. So the Associated Students at SDSU is a massive, like it's $20 million 
corporation, essentially. They run and operate seven of the facilities on campus. And when I came into the job, they had just passed the year before a fee referendum for the students where they agreed to give more money to increase the uh, funds for the case, which is the program that I ran, the Cultural Arts and Special Events Program, uh, with the intent of you need to offer more programming on campus and we want you to do this spring festival. It has to be a sustainability focus, but we want it to rival like USD's Sun God. Um, and so I came into a position where all of a sudden I had to hire someone full-time that had never been a position, a, a full-time assistant, um, two graduate assistants, multiple part-time assistants, um, student assistants, and advise the student board of 60 students. Um, and it was and an influx of cash, an influx of money with the intent of putting on this big program. So I came in like hot with all these different things to do, uh, and I just loved it. I loved it. You like, like, you like mayhem. I do a little bit, yes. What? Well, so I went to USD. Yeah. I don't remember no sun god. Yeah, yeah. Thing <laughs> going on, probably because I was a grown man. What did you guys do to rival sun god? Yeah, you know that's a hard one because it's it's like a long-standing history, and ours had to be sustainability focused. So the first year we run this event, we called it Green Fest, um, and it was all sustainability focused. It was a week of events leading up to this festival concert, and so the first year we did it, uh, we did it out just on a walkway. We had like slightly stupid. We did this outdoor Hell stage. Yeah. yeah, it was OB. great. Mm-hmm. It's like stupid it was Those great. Are my people there it was a phenomenal concert but we had like 1500 students come to that and everyone's like this is awesome and i'm like we have 40,000 students at this campus like 1500 is lame Weak. so the next year we brought out lmfao and we did it at the open air theater and we had like 35 4000 students and everyone's like high-fiving like this is great this is awesome and i'm like this is weak so the next year we did it at the VA House Arena. We sold out the arena, but before the concert, we had this big festival with rides and a beer garden, and there was all solar powered and all this stuff. Um, solar and we powered had, beer garden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then we had uh, 9,500 students, around 10,000 students, and we sold that out. And everyone, and now I'm like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Um, and then the last year before I left, we moved it. T Pain. We had three music stages. We had two a main stage a side stage and then a DJ dance tent uh, all rides we, we shut down three big parking lots and we had around 12,000 students and it was just kind of continued growth and at some juncture along the way you had your first kid yeah in the like six months after I got that job I hired a full-time assistant and she had to become the interim coordinator while I took maternity leave and I took I worked up until like a week before I had my son and I came back like the second I could. I loved my child. Don't get me wrong, but I was like ready to get back. Um, and the timing worked out really good because I ended up having him in November and then I was back right before our first Green Fest. So all the work that we had done, I got to come and actually see it come to fruition. So how many? How long do you get for maternity leave? I took I took exactly three months. That's, that's the authorization? Yeah. Or whatever? Yeah. So, you you have this first kid. Meanwhile, Flynn's just going on deployment. Doing He's just gone doing, all the time. Just doing it teams. Yeah, when you first check into a team, you're just gone. Yep. It just there's no there's nothing. Yep. Um, seems like there's enough time to get pregnant again, though. Well, he came back. <laughs> yeah, he came back, and he's like, "I'm ready to have a second child." 
and like I feel like I feel like the universe just does whatever like Flynn puts it out in the universe and the universe just provides and so he gets back um, and I'm like no I am finally like in this great state my job's going good I've got this kid now he's two um, like one and a half and and I had like finally lost all the weight I was feeling good I was strong like I just was so excited to just be that for like the three months he was going to be home and I I finally convinced him, like, because we're going back and forth, and he's just like, I really think we should. And I'm like, no, I'm, we're, we're not. Um, and the whole time I'm arguing with him, I'm pregnant with our second son. So the universe provided, and now, uh, yes, I'm pregnant with our second. All right, so now that that takes place, you're, you're pregnant again. You're still working the same job. Mm-hmm. Um, then, so this is now 2010, right? Yes, yep. Th- this, is, this is when... Um, this is when Brendan died. Yep. What 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 did that look like from your perspective? So Brendan Looney, just a freaking outstanding guy, um, died in a helicopter in in Afghanistan. How did you? And this is one of Flynn's best friends. Yep. How how did you hear about it? I was in my office at San Diego State, and I had a couple students and some staff in there, and we were having this meeting, and I had a big glass window or like door. And I remember seeing Flynn up at the door, and his eyes weren't red. He wasn't crying, but I could immediately tell something was wrong. And was I was it normal also, for him to come to no, the office? Yeah. Very abnormal. So I was like, why is he here? And I could just see it on his face. So I excused myself and I walked outside. And I thought, like, did something happen to his dad? Like, what what's going on here? And it took him a second, and then he told me about the helicopter crash. So he had heard about the crash, um, and he talks about it as, like, knowing. Like, knowing Brendan was on that helicopter and not being able to explain why. Um, obviously not wanting that to be the case, but he basically went into Leif's uh, office. He worked with Leif at that time at SEAL Team One and basically went in and just was like, tell me it wasn't Brendan. And Leif wasn't able to give him information initially because they hadn't contacted Amy yet. They were trying to find her, his wife. Um, and so Flynn kind of demanded again, like, tell me it wasn't Brendan. And he could see it on Leif's face. Um, and uh, Leif was like, hey, we haven't been able to contact Amy. There's nothing you can do right now, but I'll call you as soon as we find her so you can go to the house. Um, so he told me what had happened, and we didn't know what to do. We were just waiting to try to figure out how to help. Um, so we left, and we got lunch. We're just waiting for this phone call. And we, I remember we went to in and out He finished his meal, and he goes, okay, I'm done feeling sorry for myself. Let's figure out what we can do for the family. And he just made this shift of like, okay, we're just going to figure out what's next. Who did he was he part of the notification for for Amy? No, so Amy was on a sales call. Um, it, she was in a sales position, and so she was out on this call, and nobody could find her. And so at this point, they were like, "Hey, sit tight, and we'll call you as soon as we find her," because we didn't know where she was. Um, and we got that phone call right after he had kind of made that declaration that, like, "Hey, we're not going to feel sorry for ourselves. We're going to go just." figure out how to help. Um, and we got the call that they had found Amy and that we could now go to the house. So we went to Amy's house um, about a half an hour after she had been delivered the news. When you were at that time, you know, you got Flynn kind of going on deployment and it's sort of, you know, you where, where were you guys living? 
Claremont Mesa. So you're living in Claremont Mesa. You, you know, you're working. He disappears, but you don't really think about where he's at. Like, it seems like it's very easy living in San Diego, California, that the war isn't a real thing. 100%. I thought my husband and his teammates were invincible. Invincible. I was completely naive to the reality that they may not come home. So when we found out about Brendan, it was devastating. And devastating because it like shattered this really cool veil I had as to what was going on. And now, um, you know, I realize they're not invincible. And it was Brendan, like one of the best human beings, one of the best guys I've ever known. And it just seemed so unreal. I know I I always felt like when the families would go to funerals, like I I can't tell what they're thinking, but you've got to imagine that every single wife, parent, son, daughter is all thinking this could be my dad, this could be my husband, this could be my son. Like that has to be the thought going through. And that's why those, you know, like, um, you know, when I had guys killed, I remember my wife going to these services and I was like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be just such a shock to the system. And you know what's interesting is I went, I have like emails that I'd be sending my wife and my wife, you know, we're in the middle of the Battle of Ramadi. Guys are getting, Army and Marine Corps guys are getting wounded and killed every day. And I'm sending my wife emails like, oh, hey, you know, how's, like literally not one indication of any kind at all that there's a war going on that there's any danger of any kind uh mikey monsoor same thing you know talk to to his family and they're like yeah he mikey monsoor who is in a gunfight on a daily basic basis practically the entire deployment was like they're like oh what are you doing over there and he says oh you know we're just training iraqis we don't do very much it's boring he's telling his family it's boring so that it's i i think it's just to to, to recognize the fact that, especially I think in San Diego, you know, if you're in, if you're at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, like the whole, the whole, it's such a focus and, mm-hmm. and the, the airborne divisions are huge and everybody's a part of it. In San Diego, you know, you're in the SEAL teams, like you're, you, not everyone's a part of it. And there's a bunch of Navy people, but they're not gonna be getting killed in combat. And so you get very, very detached from or like you said like there's a there's a protective screen up that you don't realize when these guys get on a plane they might not come back and um yeah i i I can't imagine how that impacted you your thoughts your family um as that happened and as you watch this happen to to amy I figured out really early, because we got to this house, and I'm pregnant at this time too, so I've just got a bunch of you know, heightened emotions anyways. And I walked into that room, and I just remember thinking like, I can't do this. Like, she had a really good friend and her sister-in-law that was there, and they were sitting on the couch holding her hand. And I had a moment where I could give her a hug and kind of hold her hand, and then very quickly I was like, I don't have the capacity to do this. 
And so I went over to the Keiko officer and I was like, hey, what can I do to help? Can you just give me something to do? And he was like, yeah, actually, I need someone to go in the office and find something. He was looking for some paperwork. And so that's really how I managed that entire uh, excursion is the, is looking for things to do. Even when we ended up going out to the family and the funeral, it was like, cool, I'll make the programs. I'll go meet with the people at the church, with the family. I'll order dinner. Like, Just give me something to do because I can't emotionally handle the weight of this right now. It was too much at a young age to to manage. And I couldn't I can't even fathom if I was feeling that the weight that that Amy was feeling. Yeah. Uh, very, very similar to my sort of standard operating procedure in those times it was like okay, I need to do work. Yeah. I need to find something to do. And that's I don't think a bad thing, you know. It might not be the healthiest thing in the world, but I'll tell you what, you got to get through especially when there's the family and you know, like you got to support them. That's got to become the focus, not your own personal grief for sure. And, you know, and Amy ended up with Ryan and, and Heather Kelly right in the book. Um, a knock at the door actually covered it with Ryan on this podcast, podcast 201, just a very powerful book and incredible to hear their perspective through, um, these terrible, terrible situations. Um, you now have a son. Yep. Named Brendan. Yep. So Brendan Brendan passed in September 2010 and my second we didn't know if it was a boy or girl. And we were at his funeral um and we got in the car and Flynn kind of lost it and then when he kind of compiled himself he was like I just have this instinct that it's a boy that our child is a boy and I want to name him Brendan and I want to ask the family and he was asking for my permission and I was like yeah go for it and so he talked to the family uh, shortly after that and asked if that would be okay and Brendan my Brendan was born in January and it was a boy and we named him Brendan in, in honor of Brendan Looney absolutely outstanding was was Flynn did Flynn have another deployment to do at this point Yes. Yep. He, he, my son, Brennan was born. He was home for like three days and then he left, but that was a training excursion. And then I think it was like, no, uh, yeah, it was a year later. He did another deployment to the Philippines this time. So you were a little bit more comfortable when he's down there in the Philippines as opposed to being over in the Middle East at the time. Yeah, he had done a deployment to Yemen, which was definitely a little more heightened, you know, because at the time there was a lot of stuff going on the news about Yemen and some of the the dangers there. And I didn't get to talk to him very much when he was in Yemen, hardly at all. So the Philippines was a very different experience because I got to talk to him. I actually flew out there and like he took leave for a week and I hung out like (laughs) that. That didn't happen on any other deployment that he had been previously. No. Yeah. And that's the thing is doesn't matter where you are. You know, when you're in the military, you're flying in helicopters, you're parachuting, you're diving. Like all these things are, you know, they're all they're all risky. They're all it's all risky business. We mitigate the risk as much as we can, but things can still happen. So I know there's stress when you're doing that. And then he comes home from that deployment, and he Flynn decides he's going to get out. Yeah, 
I think it was that deployment. I can't remember. It, it all just melts together. It's mm-hmm. like six years of just straight chaos. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he decides he's going to get out. He had always had a dream. Um, I mean, part of the, it, even going in the SEAL teams, he was going to get out of the military. He was going to do one more stint and then get out. He was he was on a ship prior to that. And he just realized he went to the he went into the military just to get through school and cover school um, ROTC program because he's one of eight and they just didn't have money for college. So he's like, cool, I can go this way and kind of bankroll college. Um, and then he realized realized that he didn't want his Navy time to be what he had experienced prior to that. It just, not that it was a bad thing at all. He just wanted to do more. He didn't want that to be the, his lasting legacy was like, oh, I spent a couple years on a ship and then, you know, uh, pushed off. So he yeah, ended I think, up. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but Flynn was like in the Persian Gulf yeah. while it was like, it was like literally while I was in Ramadi. Yep. And he's like seeing reports of what's going on and seeing the news. And he just kind of said to himself, I got to I gotta try and do that. Yeah. And so he kind of put the package in and went that route. But he always had the desire to go on and do something else when that was over. So he knew he wasn't necessarily going to be a lifer, especially as an officer. Like you get to a certain point where you don't get to do the things that you loved doing. And he always knew that he had another route he wanted to take. So he um, ended up applying to a couple of business schools um, and wanted to go get his master's. So we left San Diego and drove cross country to Boston with our two boys and kind of changed up everything at that point. Because and you just he, ditched your job? Yeah, I was not happy about this move. <laughs> I wanted to support him, but Were I was kind of stoked he was getting out of the Navy. That's got to be a little bit of a relief for you. Kind of. I but mean, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, yes and no. I mean, you you build up such a it's such a strong community that there's such a high sense of pride. And I had learned so much that at this point, um, I was a lot more comfortable in that setting. Um, not that I wanted him going off to war and I didn't want the chance of him not coming home, but there was just a real pride in what we were doing. And now we're leaving. I'm leaving a job I loved that I would have stayed at forever um, where I have, a, I feel like I have a lot of value. Like I'm valued in this role and I just felt comfortable there. And my kids were set up in a really good situation. They went to the, the daycare on campus, which was incredible. Um, and I just had really good relationships. And if I'm being honest, there was probably a little bit of resentment because I had like already everything that I cared about or I thought I cared about in college like just made a shift because now we're just focusing on Flynn's going through buds Flynn's becoming a SEAL Flynn's deploying and so everything was always the second seat to what he was doing and now once again we were uprooting our lives and going cross country to support him Um, and so it was just a transition that I had to make um, and it took me a little while it coupled with Like now I go to this prestigious university and people are like, find out I'm a mom and then like conversation ends and they're like, oh, cool. And then they want to move on to something more interesting. So now I'm like, I left this career and now I'm like the stay at home mom supporting my husband while he goes through college. And I wasn't super happy with that role. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it took me a couple months to get comfortable there. That was the attitude you got, huh? Yeah, it was like, yes, especially early on because all the students are just trying to meet the other students. And there's all these things that we do when you get there to, that they do as part of onboarding and orientation and things like that. And there's all these different events. And, you know, people would be having a conversation with you and they'd be like, oh, so what do you do? And it was like, oh, well, you know, I was in this, but now I'm home with my kids. And they're like, oh, cool. 
so um, <laughs> who are you? And it was like, all of a sudden I'm like, no, like I, I do cool stuff too. Like I've had a career, like it just was difficult. It was a lot of, a lot of ego uh, for, on my side that I had to manage because I was Yo. like struggling, <laughs> yeah. I've got to admit I've adopted a, my son and his buddies will use the term yo at this point for like for like everything every reaction that they give so i'm i'm, I'm You're in that. it's kind of grabbing me yeah. so when you tell me that someone's like oh nice to meet you bye yeah. i'm like yo <laughs> so he's going to college and then you you're living i mean it's not cheap to live in boston and no. What's his job? Does he have a job? No. Is he getting GI? Well, do you even have GI Bill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he's yep. got GI Bill. Yellow ribbon and all that. Yeah. He, uh, we, yeah, we depleted our savings in the two years that we were in Boston. Um, and in once I got past the initial shock of just this new life. And hating everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. It was such a cool experience yeah, because awesome. it was the first time that Flynn was home a lot. So now like Nico would get on his little bike and he'd ride from our little apartment that was on campus across to where Flynn would have his break in between classes and he'd bring him an energy drink, goes weren't out at this time, mm-hmm. but he would bring him an energy drink and a book and Flynn would spend his break reading and, and you know, drinking this energy drink. And then Nico would ride back and he would come home for lunch and then go lay down with Brendan and put Brendan down and then go back to class. And so all of a sudden it went from like, he's never around ever to he's here a lot. <laughs> like <laughs> I see him in the morning, he's coming home at lunch, I see him again at night. Um, but I started to figure out, like I, I made friends, so that really helped. And I started to get a little more comfortable with like just having time with my kids that I hadn't had previously. Um, and then then in my true nature, I just started finding things I could do. So I started helping uh, with various things on campus. I got into some event planning on campus. <laughs> Flynn came home with a project and I basically did it. So uh, I just started like, cool, I can still have all this stuff and I'll just find ways to satisfy like the challenging component that I needed. And as you're, as Flynn's kind of wrapping up there is when Leif came out to talk to Flynn Mm-hmm. And be like, hey, Flynn, you know, we've got this thing going at Echelon Front. What do you think? You know, when you graduate from school, maybe you come by and we could see if you want to work with us. And you're like eavesdropping on this conversation or something? No, so <laughs> Leif came to dinner at our house, but Brendan, I don't know what he had done, but for whatever reason, I had to take him to the emergency room. He needed like a stitch or something. Uh, just, you know. Uh, boys, two boys. Mm-hmm. I had my third daughter at that point too, my third child, uh, my daughter. Um, so I had to leave. So I didn't stay for dinner. Um, so I like said hi to Leif and then I was out with Brennan, like managing whatever injury he had. Um, and I got home and Flynn was telling me about their conversation and this company, Echelon Front, and this book and what you guys were doing. And he and I was like, oh, cool. And he was like, yeah, he was kind of trying to, you know, see if I was interested. But at that point, he had already committed to this other consultancy and like had a path. Um, and he was like, you should reach out. Like, I, you'd love what they're doing. And I was like, I don't know. And I thought about it for about a half an hour. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to. And I sent Leif an email. I think it was that night. And I just said, hey, I had this great conversation with, with Flynn. And he told me about what you guys are doing. And I don't know what you're looking for or if I even am what you're looking for. But if there's an opportunity, um, we're leaving this stint. And I'm kind of looking for my next mission. And I'd love to talk to you about it. What did you think he wanted? I had no idea. 
no idea. I saw him two weeks later. We were in New York, and we went to brunch with him and his wife, and we had a conversation again at that point. And that's when he kind of told me, hey, I got your email. Like, if I'm being honest, what I need right now is probably, like, part-time, maybe maybe 10 hours, maybe 20 hours, but it's kind of, like, admin. Because I had sent him my resume Mm -hmm. and, like, did this whole thing. And, um, (laughs) And we had this conversation, and I was like, you know what? I don't. I don't know what I want to do. I can go back to higher education, but I'm just kind of looking for something that's that challenge. So if you're open to it, I'd be open for some part-time work. And and that'll give me some time to kind of figure out what I really want to do. So I just was stoked about what you guys are building, mm-hmm. even just without really understanding what it was at the time. I was just excited. So I was willing to kind of take the part-time job um, to just you know see if it worked out. Yeah, and they somehow convinced me to to yeah. hire you because I never want to hire anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I was adamant. He sent me, an, he forwarded me an email. What did I say? He forwarded me an email. He he was like, this is from 2014. Yeah. And it was something along the lines of, gosh, I wish I could remember the terminology, but it was some legal, legal description for you. And it was like general labor. Should we, oh yeah, should we put her as, should this, should this description be, you know, employee or should it be general labor? And I just wrote back two words. I wrote back general labor. That's it. <laughs> that's a fair description in the early days of Echelon Run. <laughs> so that's what you did. You came on and you started yeah. kind of like just doing admin. So this because the discussion I had with Leif was like, we could really we we could really use someone to help us, you know, uh uh book our travel and stuff. I was like, book your own travel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm booking my own travel. You can book your own travel, be fine. And you know, he's kept, just kept at it and eventually was like, all right, cool. I figured he's not gonna be pestering me that much. And you know, in typical um, typical fashion, his he was able to articulate good reasons and I wasn't able to articulate reasons not. So eventually you gotta say, okay, this might be a better plan than mine, which is my plan was just to BTF on and just yeah. keep doing everything ourselves. So he he won that and and we brought you on as just doing like travel. I don't know what else you were doing. You were doing like travel. Yeah. I didn't talk to you. I didn't care. I was like, yeah. I don't need this support. Maybe you should pay for this girl, Leif. Maybe that's what you should do. <laughs> I don't think I talked to you for like the first year. Like even in person, like you were always cordial, you were always nice, and you weren't like mean or rude by any means. But there was definitely a little bit of like a "we'll see about this." Like I, I could feel it. I was like, "All right." Um, but I'd, I'd worked a lot with Leif, and I was doing like literally some of the most menial, mundane admin tasks. Um, and I took on some other jobs too, some part-time jobs because I was paying for full-time childcare, but like working at Echelon Front like five or ten hours a week. Um, and so I picked up a job at Tiffany and Company, and I was doing some stuff with them that was kind of like I, I just had to go monthly and like, I did a lot of design uh, in their like window displays and things of that nature. So I just was taking on little projects uh, to to manage like the full-time cost of sending my kids to childcare. And I remember Flynn was like, hey, how long are we going to do this? You know, <laughs> and he was good with it. He was very supportive, but it was a valid question. And I was like, you know what, just give me six months. And this point I had been with you guys for like six months. I'm like, just give me six months. And, you know, and then I'll make a decision if things haven't progressed or I don't have an opportunity to grow here, like we'll, um, we'll make a decision. Um, and it wasn't long after that, that the book came out and like everything changed. Yeah. And when the book came out, that was kind of my, I don't know if I, I probably met you before that or talked yeah. to you before that, but it wasn't when the book came out was sort of like 
the first time I saw your capabilities and I was super stoked because you were, because it was like three hours of sleep a night. It was, you know, all day long, tight pressure, timelines, everything had to be organized. And I remember, you probably don't remember this, but I remember we have like the St. Martin's Press guy who's a good guy. But I was, I remember like looking at you like what, you tell me, and he was kind of like, like you were getting in on his rice bowl because you proved to me pretty quick that you know what's going on and you can handle it. And you would be making things happen. So that was definitely left a really awesome impression on me. The way you handled, we probably did in seven days. We probably did, you know, uh, well, so many, yeah, so many <laughs> little movements and to the different place and to the radio station and the TV place and to the interview place and and then the dinner thing and like just all that stuff going on. And I didn't think about anything. All I did was do what you told me to do, which as you know now, like that's that's how I roll. Like you, I'm not looking about what's going on. I'm not getting into the details of the stuff. You tell me where to go, put a mic in my hand, and I'm gonna rock and roll. That's what I'm gonna do, Echo Charles. Yeah. So as soon as I realized, oh, she gets it. Like she understands how to make this stuff happen. And like you, you did exactly what we needed, and so after that, I was I was super stoked, and and then I think you just started to take things. This is sort of the you know when I did that intro talking about the principles and how you utilize the principles. What you started doing is taking ownership of things, taking ownership of things that were important, things that you knew you could control and get in order, and that's what you did. And the, every time you grabbed, you know. Project A, and you had control over it and it worked, and it was like, oh, Project B's over there, let's take that one, and then Project C, and I'm like, hey, we got Project D, Jamie, can you do this too? And you're like, oh, I'm already on it. And so then it was just an escalation. You know, if you, it's such a good lesson learned for people, you you literally were hired part-time as to do admin work, and you just started taking ownership, dominating, crushing, and the more you crushed and the more you took ownership of, the more ownership and responsibility you got, the more you did, and then you started, I don't know how long it was, but all of a sudden you looked at us like, hey, I need help. Mm-hmm. Because once the book came out, the podcast came out, and then it was it was on like Donkey Kong. Mm-hmm. And we started just getting all kinds of work. It was like a month after that that whirlwind of a trip. And I remember Leif invited me to the book launch and he was like, hey, you should come out with us to New York. And like we started in Vegas, you guys had a gig and it was your first like book signing and keynote. And then we ended up going to New York from there. And you're right, it was a total gut check. And now that you know what you know about me, I loved it. I was like, this is like total chaos. You're getting like, no. I remember going to going back to my room. I stayed it with like a friend. We had no money. Like Echelon Front didn't have money back then. I wasn't staying in some posh hotel. I stayed with a friend and I we got back at like one after like all day go and I had three hours to basically sleep before I had to get back on the subway and meet you guys and I she was in like a a New York apartment so no windows and I shut the door and I crashed and when I woke up I didn't know where I was like I was just so tired (laughs) but it was like cool let's go um and you really started to take a turn I didn't know what I was intended to do during the book launch. I was like, all right, Leif asked me to go. There wasn't a lot of guidance of like, hey, here's what we need you to do. So I just was like, I just need to be ready to answer any questions. I need to understand this schedule so that I could help in whatever was required of me. Uh, And that really was my mantra through all of that, that first year and a half before the book came out was like, I'm just gonna find a way to provide value because I don't have a clear understanding of what exactly I should be doing here, but 
when I saw a need, I was like, all right, let me just see if I can handle that. And then something would come up, you know, in conversation. I'm like, well, I could probably do that. Let me try to figure that out. And just that continued over time. And then the book came out and it was like a month later. We started getting calls from people to have you guys out to speak. And all of a sudden that cadence became significant. And I was like, hey, Leif, I think this part-time gig now, now needs to be full-time. And it went from like 20 hours a week to like 65 and like nonstop consuming all of my waking hours. And uh, and it was maybe eight months or nine months after that that I finally was like, hey, I'm going to need a little help if we're going to continue doing this. Like I've, I've reached a capacity of things that I could take off the plate because uh, early on it was marketing, finance, accounting, budgeting, sales, contracting. I mean, like the list was endless of like what I was trying to handle. And I realized at a certain point that I can't do all of this. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. It's an awesome path for anyone to follow. You know, anyone to follow. You didn't have experience in finance, marketing, contracting, all that other stuff. You didn't have any experience in that, but you took it. You'd get help if you needed to call a lawyer or call someone about some contract. You'd get that done. But to take ownership of it and and get the job done using whatever means necessary, that's what you did. And you just you just started to grow and and responsibility and then you started to grow in your job as well and we started to grow the company as we started to grow the company you know all uh the tide rises the boats all boats ride with the rise with the tide that's what that was you and it's a protocol that anybody can follow i think i and one muster i called it the jamie cochran protocol <laughs> like go and start doing stuff yeah. and start making it right and if you do that you're gonna it's so obvious when people you know we work with so many companies if you're a if you're a highly motivated person that will step in and take responsibility and take ownership and make things happen, you're gonna rock and roll. People are gonna love having you and they're gonna give you that responsibility. Look, if you take responsibility for something and you mess it up, you could find yourself moving in the other direction. Now, if you if you take responsibility and you mess up and you say, hey, this is the mistake I made, it won't happen again, then it's like, okay, cool. Well, let's make sure it doesn't happen again and we move forward and you can make up for that and go beyond it. But that idea of taking, being humble enough to take a job, because you know, you had a pretty prominent job at San Diego State University and you went from that prominent job to a, a pretty menial job first at Echelon Front and you were humble enough to do that. You didn't complain about it. I, like, I never, I haven't actually don't think I've ever seen you complain anyways to this day. So you didn't complain about it, you just did it. And you did it well. You know what's funny is you don't like doing paperwork, do you? Mm, not my thing. Not my thing. No. Yeah, and like I didn't know that until like three years ago. Like three years ago, I was like, oh, she doesn't like doing paperwork. She's yeah. like me. Yeah. I always thought you were like into it. You were one of those people. No, I, you know, to the point you just made, you can't deny performance. You can't deny it. And to your guys' credit, you guys gave me so much leeway. Like I would say, hey, I was thinking about taking this on. You'd be like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> like there was just a lot of autonomy, which I loved. And really, you guys set me up for failure because I was like, well, I have to make it work at Ashland Park because I can't go back to like the red tape that you get on a college campus. Um, and you want to talk about paperwork. There's a lot of that there. Um, but no, I, I'm not really one for the details. I can do it, 
and I did do it in yeah, the beginning. Yeah, you definitely did it. You have to like hone in on the paperwork and the details and those types of things. But where I really love sitting is the brainstorming and the thinking and the solving problems and the big picture. I love that piece of it. But early on at Echelon Front, there wasn't a lot of capacity for that because we had all these smaller tactical things that had to get done. Um, and then obviously as our team has grown in nine years, I just keep hiring people that are way better at the details and the paperwork than I am <laughs> so that they can handle those things. And we got, you know, Jen Tarantino, who's a freaking like warrior when it comes to like the details and the paperwork and the just the the logistics, um, which enables me to actually do what I like, which is just to think big picture. So we get done with 2015 and 2016 is when we did our first muster, which it, it was kind of like, what was it, August was when we decided to do it? It was September. or we, Yeah, we I think we decided in August, and then the event happened in October, I okay. think. Yeah. So it was something like that. It was like a that. short turnaround. Short turnaround. <laughs> you, luckily, you had experience in event planning. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you and Leif really wanted to do it. I just remember, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I remember a phone call and like, we had been talking about it like vaguely. And then finally the three of us were on a call and it was like, hey, we wanna do this event. We wanna do it in October. We wanna do it in San Diego. And we want like 350 people. Can you make that happen? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I can make that happen. And inside I'm like, I don't know if I can make that happen. (laughs) This seems like a really tight time frame. Um, But we pulled it together. It, it, it turned out awesome. We sold, sold that event out. out. Yeah. yeah, we had that, 365 people at that first event, and it felt like like we made it. Yeah, it was that so was great. epic. Yeah, I, I, I remember from my perspective, I was like, "Hey, worst case scenario, 32 people show up at this thing, and they're gonna have literally the best event they've ever had in their life, and they'll be stoked, and we'll lose some money, but we'll, you know, we'll figure it out." And you're like, "Okay." Cool, fair enough, let's rock and roll. (laughs) I was like managing this budget to like the penny because my biggest fear was like, I can't have the first program, the first big project they give me be a failure. And so I'm like, how many tickets do we need to sell that at least it's a wash? I just don't wanna go into the red. Um, And I had like this like very detailed budget and I was tracking every single thing. And we had nothing established. We didn't know what the two day agenda was gonna look like. We didn't know what kind of (laughs) audiovisual we wanted. There was so many things that came out of that first muster, like the music we play in between sets and walk-in and things of that nature. Um, Like merchandise was a new thing for us. We never had any of that. There was just so much in that first uh, muster that is awesome because we've evolved so much, but it really set the stage. And there's still things that we learned in that first muster we implement now that just worked. And that's, that's where I think from a leadership perspective, when you execute things and you're gonna take some risk to execute things, sometimes the the downside because you executed quickly the downside because you didn't have maybe things fully planned out the upside is the lessons that you learned mm-hmm. because you can't learn lessons you can't learn all the lessons unless you execute so actually executing something and that's one of the things that drove me to execute that thing was like oh i know if we do this we're going to learn a bunch we're going to learn a bunch we're going to learn how to do it and then it's going to be one step closer to being a lot better Whereas just sitting around and brainstorming like, well, what do you think it'll be like when we do a two-day schedule? Like, no, let's make a two-day schedule and let's execute this thing. And then you figure out, hey, this was a little too much or do a little bit less of that or a little bit more of that. So I think leaning towards executing, as long as you can mitigate the risk, you know, somewhat, then, then take a shot, take a crack at it. That's what we're doing. 
Um, and that's what we did. And what, what, what muster are we on now? How many We're coming we up on muster 17. Muster 17. And to your point, we haven't stopped learning. Like I remember after that muster, there was a ton of lessons learned and then we did it again and there was more lessons learned and we did it again and there was more lessons learned. And even to this last event, muster 16, we debriefed after and there was like, okay, there's a couple things we can we can still tweak. There's always little things. Every muster, we've added something or done something based on feedback from attendees and observations from the team. So that debrief has been awesome because every event just gets better. Yeah, that being said, the learning curve on the first like three or four <laughs> musters was insane. I remember Leif and I were up in New York City, our second muster, it's two o'clock in the morning. We have to get up at three o'clock in the morning to PT and we're signing certificates. Yeah. And it was just like, yo. <laughs> yeah, Leif always brings up that story because there was a bunch of certificates that had been duplicate printed. So he just was like, "It's you guys just want to get, get done. And he's seeing like John seven times. Yeah. And he's just like, oh my gosh. Um, that was a big one. I mean, that was the first time we had JP and Dave on stage. So yeah. that was a learning curve. Uh, I was super sick at that muster, like really sick. We got the day kicked off mm -hmm. and I like went up to the room and took a nap because I was like very sick. And it was... It, that that second one was my least favorite muster. Even though it was the first time with Dave and JP, it was it was cool. Yeah, and it was awesome being in New York. Kind of like yeah. there was not there's a lot of things that are negative about New York, but there was also some awesome yeah. things about being in New York City. That was cool. Uh, then you when did you talk? Because because you, you ended up eventually. Because listen, as I'm watching this, I'm seeing that you know we have zero employees. Then we have you. Then all of a sudden we have three. Then all of a sudden we have five. Then all of a sudden we have seven. Then we have, you know, we're bringing instructors on. Like this is growing. And so what I'm getting to see this whole time is you utilizing the principles that we sit around and talk about that you had to sit there and listen to it. You, you had to sit there and read. And I saw you utilizing them. Like, and for me, there's a, there's a, you know, Alan Belcher, jujitsu, uh, yes. MMA. Yes, sir. When he fought against Takinho, you know who Takinho is? Yeah, he was a guy that was a brutal leg locker, brutal leg locker, and they were fighting in the UFC. And Alan Belcher had Dean Lister go down and spend like a month training him for leg locks. And everyone was absolutely horrified of Tokino's leg locks. He had hurt people. And he was kind of like a little bit crazy where when he would get a heel hook or something, he would crank it and hurt people. So everyone was kind of scared of him. And I'd actually had one of my guys, Thomas Draval, fought him and got heel hooked in the first round. And like, it hurt, like injury, like the whole nine yards. So Alan Belcher is gonna fight Taquino and he hires Dean Lister. Dean Lister goes down and trains him on how to defend leg locks. And then I'm watching the fight on UFC. And I, it, was the, it was the coolest thing because I'm watching Alan Belcher and I'm like, oh, he's gonna, oh, yep, he's doing this right. Oh, there's the defense. Oh, yeah. But, and I could see that he was literally taking Dean's principles and just putting them to work. And he beat, and he he got out of every heel hook attempt. And he was la he was kind of like being uh, provocative about it, like, oh, try and heel hook me or try and footlock me. And and Tokinio couldn't get it. And he ended up Alan Belcher won the fight. It was it was awesome. But I remember watching going, oh, I know exactly what that is. Like, that, I see what you're doing there. I see what you're doing, Alan Belcher. Oh, there's the next move. I, I, you could see what he was doing. You could see what he had learned. And I got to watch you apply these things. And I'd be like, oh, I, know. I see exactly what she's doing. Oh, she's using decentralized command over there. Oh, she's got prioritized and execute. And I, I was watching you do this, you know, for a year, two years, three years. And at some point, 
Leif and I are talking like, you know, it'd be kind of cool to get Jamie to get up there and talk about some of these principles from her perspective. And also it'd be cool to get that, you know, someone that's not in the military up there because we have, you know, me, Dave, JP, Leif, we're all military background. And we're sitting here preaching to people that this stuff works in any environment. Well, it's nice to get someone that's from a different environment, get up there and, and, and tell what it's like and how it is from the pure civilian perspective. So eventually, what was it? It was in Australia. It was the first time you got up on there, right? Yeah. The conversation had come up a couple months before that. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Just kind of like, sure, guys. And and we didn't really talk about it again. And then when we were getting ready for Australia, it was the prime opportunity because we weren't taking the entire crew. We were taking a more condensed crew because we're obviously going all the way to Australia and it was expensive. So uh, it got brought up again. And I finally was like, all right, like we'll give this a try. And I prepped for my first brief brief at that muster, and I gave my first keynote there, uh, and I was terrified. Why were you terrified? I'd rather get up there and sing a song. I think it was just like, (laughs) (laughs) it was just, like it wasn't necessarily the stage. It wasn't even the audience. It was two things. One, it was my first time, so there's just a lot of pressure. I think I gave that brief like 47 times before I ever <laughs> went on stage. My parents probably heard it like 12 times because I was like, can I run my brief for you again? Uh, and so I just was really practiced and I wanted to make sure I did well. The biggest challenge or the reason why it was so difficult was it wasn't the audience, it wasn't the stage. It was the fact that sitting stage right was you and Leif and Dave and JP and these people that I highly respected and valued and I didn't want to let you down. And I didn't want to do a disservice to the content that we teach because I believed in it. And I, I wholeheartedly wanted to help people understand that these principles apply in every aspect. And I was, I think, a little afraid, afraid that I would somehow not do the message justice. Well, you kind of knocked it out of the park, didn't you? <laughs> I thought you did. The crowd thought you did. You obviously got repeat performances. Now you're a staple. Yeah. <laughs> a staple of that. And and from there, once you did that, you know, now you're a full-on instructor at Echelon Front. Um yeah. and you had to do a couple things to make that happen. Well, number one, you you kept you you know, you went and expanded from like, oh, well, Jamie can do that keynote and then yep, Jamie can actually do a little bit of a workshop and then all of a sudden you're doing that stuff. You also had to build a team that could do everything that you were doing that could cover for all that other stuff so that you could go out and do the instructor type stuff. So you you had a, it was a, it was a pretty quick though. You did that pretty quickly, that transformation. Yeah. It was like over a year. Well, and we had been slowly building the team at that point anyways. And up until that point, like I, I got a lot of credit for the musters. People would come out and be like, man, that was awesome. You run a great event. And I, I always wanted to be like, no, no, you don't understand. Like there is a team of people that are managing this, that are making me look gr- good. Um, and we're just lucky because the people that come to these events make this atmosphere very unique compared to other environments. So like we could be mediocre and the event would still be amazing because people show up and they just are engaged. Um, so there was just there was already this team dynamic and people on the team that were stepping up and taking over responsibilities to the point where I could even be on stage in Australia. Whereas like four musters prior to that, there's no way I could have done that because I was in the background managing all of that, that uh, the responsibilities. And then over time, every muster, I had less and less and less to do. 
kind of like Echo. Echo <laughs> shows up, you know, with his camera. And then all <laughs> oh, at the monster. Yeah, he just walks around holding it. He's not actually taking footage. No. He's actually signing books, and and he's <laughs> you know just with the people. But but over time, that happened with me at the monster. I had less and less to do, um, and so it opened the pathway for me to actually think more about what it would be like to be an instructor. And I realized, I realized after that first semester that when people look at you and Leif, they see something that maybe is like they can't achieve. And so what I provided was a different perspective and the recognition that like, hey, I'm not like these seasoned combat veterans that I work with. I'm just a regular person just trying to become a better mom and trying to implement these principles in my business and how I lead my life. Um, and people saw themselves in me. And so I, I got over that imposter syndrome of is there, you know, what am I doing trying to teach this message to, you know what, I have some value to add. I have a perspective that I think could help people. Yeah, and like I said, you put this stuff to work. I mean, you're talking about the muster, the first four musters, you were kind of in the weeds and you had to do stuff. The fifth muster, maybe a little less. The sixth muster, uh, you don't do anything now at the muster. <laughs> no, you know? I get in my team's way. I'm like, yeah. hey, guys. And Jen's like, no, 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 we got it. And then I'm like, well, what about this? She's like, we got it. And I'm like, you know what? I'll just be over here if you need anything. <laughs> yeah, and what that is, is that's decentralized command. Yeah. That's making sure that everyone understands what the mission is. That's cover and move. That's everyone understanding what the priorities are. Like, those are the principles being executed. The muster's a great example. I mean, I use the muster as an example at the muster because it truly does does represent the principles it's really obvious everyone's there yeah everyone's there. like the crowd is sitting there and it's like oh all this stuff i didn't do anything i didn't do all i did was show up they put a microphone on me i'll walk out there and talk that's literally all i have to do there's all this av set up there's meals there's pt happening there's gift bags for everybody there's the run of show and the slot like all the stuff i don't do anything i don't do anything and and now you don't do anything either Barely. <laughs> so so when you talk about, oh, you can just give your perspective, that's cool. But also you can literally speak to the fact of how these principles work for you. And the other thing that's cool about being an instructor at Echelon Front is you get to work with other companies. And when you work with other companies, you start to see when they start to implement the principles, you start to get the feedback from them and they see how it works. And now you have more tools to be able to explain these principles and how they function in different environments. So it's a, it's a pretty cool growth for you to go to, to make that transition, but it's also a really obvious move. It's re, it seems real obvious now. It might not have seemed obvious to you at some point, but like when, I, when you got done at, in Australia, Actually, before you even got done, I was like, oh, you know, I watch you operate. I know what you do. I understand that you understand. I know that you deeply understand what it means to take extreme ownership. I know that you fully recognize what it means to cover move. Like these are things that you can answer any question about. So I think it's a it's an obvious move. I'm glad you're there now. Oh, I, yeah, I love it now. I, I still get nervous and it's still you guys because I go speak to companies all the time. I did a keynote yesterday and it's like no factor. It's just get up. You talk about it. I, I love this stuff. I'm When I'm speaking about it, it's authentic because I've seen it in my own life literally transform the way that I handle challenges and problems. And so I believe it. And so it's very natural and, and easy to give a keynote. And then we get to the muster and people are like, why are you so nervous? I'm like, it's you. It's like, it's you guys because <laughs> I, it's probably that same sense I talked about earlier with my dad of like, I just didn't want to let him down. I have that same sense of 
you know, significance with the Echelon Front team. I just don't want to let you guys down or disappoint you by not following through and doing the things that we're supposed to do. So if I'm ever teetering on like not following the principles, it's like I always go right back to it because I'm like, I can't be here as a part of this company and managing this mission or helping to support this mission of helping people learn these principles if I'm not applying them in every single aspect of my life. Yep. This uh, being an echelon front is a very difficult place to make excuses. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it just doesn't work out very well. Uh, then what, what do we do? We did Jocko Live, which yeah. is another, I threw Jocko Live at you with how far in advance was that? Right before we left for Australia. It was like December, like maybe November 30th or something. But right before we left for Australia, you were like, I don't even know how it came about. Somebody had the idea and we're like, all right, we're going to do this. The Jocko Live tour uh, in January. We did six shows. Uh And so we had a month to prepare for that while we were in Australia for basically two weeks doing the muster and then Christmas. And we came back from Christmas and it was like, boom, we went six weeks in a row, six different shows. We got more Jocko Live coming up, by the way. I haven't even talked about it. I keep forgetting to talk about it. I'm very bad at advertising. They're close to sold out, so you got to get your tickets now. So what is it? It's it's Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's Chi-Town. Yep. It's Boston. And where's the last one? Philly. And Philly. Yeah. That's right. This July 7th and 8th and the 21st, 22nd. Yeah. So if you want to come check out a Jocko Live, it's just me. Um talking, playing guitar. No, <laughs> we can add that into the second round. But that first round was so cool because you, if you don't know what Jocko Live is, and I think people, it's a cool way for people to introduce you to people in their life that may not listen to the podcast, but every show is unique, which I thought was so crazy. You could have easily done the exact same thing at six shows and it would have, no one would have ever noticed, but you like, based on the city you were in, your intro was different for every single show. Some of the core of it was kind of the same, but uh, I just was so fascinated going on tour with you. And I was like, I cannot believe, like the imagination never stops with you. There's always something different. Like just when I think I've learned it all, I've heard you talk for nine years, nearly every single day. And then you say something and I'm like, gosh, damn it. Like there's another good thing. I, I got to write this down. Like it's, it's crazy. Yeah. The Jocko live things are awesome. They're you, how many people they're like thousand, maybe 1500 people. Yeah, These venues are between a thousand and I think 1800. I, I'm not a diva. I'll like hang out. Someone yeah. just sent me a message. They're like, Hey, can I, is it possible that I could please, you know, meet you at this thing? I'm like, yeah, hundred percent. I'm gonna be walking around out front. You know, I'm not like in a green room with cucumbers on my eyes, the way Echo Charles usually is. <laughs> you actually get in trouble at those venues oh, because yeah. you hang out beforehand and they're like panicking. Cause they're like, we have to start the show and people can't get to their seats cause yeah. Jocko's in the aisle way. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got him. <laughs> and then after the show, you know, we'll tell them and I will prep them. Hey, we're going to be here for a long time because people, he's going to, he's going to meet every single person that wants to meet him that night and take a picture and sign a book. And they're like, well, how long? And I'm like, we could go till 11. There was a couple of shows I think we hit midnight. Oh, yeah, and the definitely. venue's like, oh my gosh, can we get out of here? They're so you know, mad. They're so pissed. Um, but that's who you are. And I think, um, yeah, it, it was, people coming to those events are wanting to meet you. That's, what, that's why they come. So the fact that you stick around and do it is cool. It was hype for you too, because at the muster, you've got audio visual. You've got all these people. You've got all these meals. You've got all these things going on. At, at, at Jocko Live, I'm like, can you get me a table? Yeah. A chair, 
and I'm good and a microphone. And so it's it's definitely a, a different vibe and I'll do Q&A too. I do Q&A so if you got questions you can ask them you know there. So anyways, we got Chaco Live coming up. You you managed to get that thing together. It was all by the way super spreader events because it was just before yeah. COVID. And it was crazy because we went to like every COVID town. Yep. It was before COVID, like no one had heard of COVID, but we finished in February. Like February mm-hmm. 28th or something was the last show in San, San Francisco. Francisco. So we did San Francisco, New York, DC, Austin. We went to every place that a two weeks later was completely shut down from COVID. We were there hugging, broing out with people, just getting after it. And so I felt like if there was a patient zero, and it happened to be me. I was like, oh, I might, if, they, if they pull the string on this, I might be the guy. Yeah. But especially that San Francisco show because you were sick. Like you, like oh, you almost lost your voice. Yeah, and I was like, right. I hope we can make it through this show. You think and I had the Miss whole, Rona? Maybe. It, I wouldn't have been surprised. But I remember when like things started happening at, like a couple weeks later. It was really closely after. It was a couple weeks, yeah, yeah. and they're talking about it. And I was like, uh, <laughs> we were just in San Diego with a thousand people, and you were sick. Yeah. And you oh were, yeah, the San Diego show was sick. You were. Yeah. Yeah. That was our last show. Well, I thought San Francisco was. That's what I meant. I'm sorry, San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. I still have funny flashbacks when um, my oldest daughter and I would be arguing about the coronavirus. And we would, in the middle of like a, a heated argument, my daughter would be like, listen, dad, the fact of the matter is Miss Rona exists. And, I, <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, but you can't blame everything on Miss Rona. <laughs> so we would still call it Miss Rona. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and then speaking of COVID, yeah. that was a wild time. Yep. That was a wild time at Echelon Front. So Echelon Front, 99% of our engagements in March of 2020 were live face-to-face going into companies, sitting down, working with them, and then March 15th comes, and I think we had, how many events did we have canceled I for think March? within the first month of like the world shutting down, we had 37 different events that were canceled. Um, or like they were like, hey, we gotta postpone, we gotta yeah. put this on hold. Several companies panicked, and they were like, we just need to cancel. Millions there was a lot of uncertainty. And millions and millions yeah. of dollars oh, yeah. worth of revenue gone gone and up until that point we had never explored virtual training and i think we all had this feeling that like you can't be effective virtually so we weren't really doing it and i think we always felt like this sense of like no in person is the way to go and then all of a sudden it was like well i guess we can't do that so what's next we we had explored it and the reason we explored it because we had a base level platform and the reason we had that was because i had a client and I went to this client and he, and he said, I want you to teach every person in my company. And I think they had 150,000 people globally. Oh yes, you're talking and, about the EF Online, yeah. Yeah, so we, so we had kind of started to do that. We had, a, we had a platform, but like I said, it was being utilized 1% of the time. And what I was, yes, I totally forgot about EF Online at mm-hmm. that time because it was still very new in, in, in its infancy. But as far as like us going on site with clients, we weren't doing any of that virtually. Yep. Everything was like, no, no, being in person is really where you get, you know, we had all these activities that required discussion yeah. and things like that. And there's also a hurdle to get over because uh, clients would be like, what, you, what do you mean video? Like, yeah. what do you mean? How does that even work? Yeah. Like, so people didn't want to do it. Yep. People said, so no, you fly out here, you fly to New York, you fly to Chicago, we wanna hear you talk. And then that was the awesome thing about COVID was all of a sudden, 
in two weeks, every single person in the world was doing video teleconferencing, video conferencing, video presentations, and now it was just normal. And that was such a huge hurdle to overcome and open people's minds to this is a way to do this. And there's actually some things about online training that's better. You know, for instance, if I'm doing an online, if I'm doing a presentation and I go and there's 3,000 people in the crowd, the people in the back row, you know, what are they seeing? They're, they're, guess what they're staring at? They're staring at the big video monitor anyways. But there's no real interaction. And then when I'm doing a, a, a presentation to 3,000 people over, the, over a web presentation, whether it's Teams or Zoom or Skype or whatever, I'm looking at them. Like, look, you can't put 3,000 people on the screen, but you those 40 people, those 40 little faces, you're getting more feedback from them than you are when you're staring at the bright lights giving a presentation to 3,000 people. So th- there's some real advantages. Also doing the Q&A. Look, you can do Q&A live and people can stand, but you don't get any screening of those questions. Whereas if you have people submitting questions into a chat room, the, there's someone that's filtering through those questions, figuring out what the best questions are. You're, you're in an awesome place. So there's some actual things about virtual presentations and virtual events that are better. Now listen, there are some things about live presentations that are better too. You get that human interaction, you get that energy, you get to real-time engagement that's human. So there's advantages and disadvantages to both, but they're both really super positive. And there's really, they both have some positives, but there's no real like negatives to either one of them. There's no like, hey, this is actually the, the real downfall of virtual, there's no real downfall. There's no real downfall to live presentations. They both have some, some higher advantages, but the base level of both those things is outstanding, which is what the world learned from COVID. Well, the benefit for us is that we start, we made the quick pivot to virtual. We started doing free, we, remember we were doing oh, three yeah. times a week free sessions and you could just join. Well, I thought you were gonna talk about the amount of stuff we did for clients. No, like, we started doing that too. We just started doing free stuff because our theory, and you said very early on when I would call you and I'd be like, hey, we had another client, they wanna cancel their contract. This was before the world knew like everything's gonna shut down. So there was a lot of fear of like, okay, do I just void this contract? Do I just let it go? Like, do we hold them to terms? Like, I didn't know how you wanted to handle that. And I would call you the first couple times and you'd say, finally, you were like, hey, relationships are paramount. And you gave me that one mantra and I was like, okay, I can run with that. I understand your intent. I can now make decisions to prioritize our clients. And so very quickly, the whole team started to do that where we shifted to virtual sessions, oftentimes for free. We started just reaching out to our entire list of clients, just checking in and and making ourselves available. Um, I know Dave did a big effort on that and I actually talked to clients on the phone. They would call with challenges that they were dealing with all through COVID. And we had most of those contracts that were canceled came back around at some point and we were able to fulfill them, whether virtually. In fact, we had, I think, seven leadership development and alignment program clients, our big contracts that we do over the course of a long term, our long range training uh, programs. All seven clients pivoted to virtual and we didn't lose a single one. And we were able to be effective at training them in a virtual setting. And the benefit to us is over that time, first of all, I got 
an immense amount of training myself because I got to sit with you guys three times a week and listen to this. Um, and I got to practice because I started doing some of those sessions. But then at the end result for Echelon Front was now we figured out you've got in-person and virtual. And the real power is kind of when you use both and you go do an in-person and then you do a virtual follow-up. Like now we can do more with the client that we couldn't do previously because budgets didn't allow for us to come four different times or get other people or take their people offline. We could do an in-person session and then send them to the academy for really amazing courses and continuation. Or we could do live virtual sessions that are deeper dive into what we're teaching and we could have a lot more impact with our clients. Yeah, it's, a little, it's literally crazy to think about the number of times that I have flown to New York City or flown to Chicago. Orlando. Or flown to Orlando or flown anywhere to give a one hour presentation. And so it takes me to go to New York. This is like a 48 hour at a minimum to get out there, because you can't like leave it to the last minute, you gotta get out there early, which means a day early, which means you're flying out early, and then you gotta get a hotel, and then you're staying in the hotel, and then you go, go there, and you're gonna get one hour from me. So they're, they're, get, they're pulling me offline for 48 to 72 hours to get a one hour thing. Meanwhile, COVID hits, I'm on a Zoom call, and I'm giving the same presentation and it takes me literally one hour and seven minutes because I'm going to get on early, make sure everything's squared away, give the presentation, answer questions, and we're all good to go. And you're going to do four of those or five of those in a day. Yep. <laughs> it's like crazy yeah. how much it helped our capacity and, and helped us by everyone understanding that virtual is a thing. It's a positive thing. There's positives to it. It has the same impact or it has, it has an equally strong impact. There are some... There's something live. Look, when live events started kicking back off and I was going to live events again and we're going to live events now, there, there's a certain level of, look, they get the camaraderie of the team all coming together. You know, when there's 800 people at this company and they're all over the country and then all of a sudden they're all in the same room, there's networking and relationship building that happens and then we're there to help help that out. So there's there's that side of it, but man, for to get those 800 people and talk to them six times instead of just once and have them all on a Zoom call at the same time, six times, there, there is some serious positives to the virtual stuff as well. And that's why COVID turned out to be a positive thing for us. Yeah, we like tripled in size in like the three year span of COVID. <laughs> it's crazy. Like we were, and at the same time, doing a lot of free stuff, just prioritizing relationships, and yet we were growing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was, you know, much to your credit of like the quick pivot of like, all right, the world's shutting down. We've got to innovate and adapt and figure out another way. And so let's start doing these free sessions. Let's put a lot more effort and energy into the academy and kind of fortify some virtual options for people. Let's, you know, spend this time building some additional curriculum. And all of a sudden, we just, you know, everyone turned and kind of ran ran quickly and we started growing as a team. I mean, we tripled tripled in size in that time span. Yeah, I don't know what my uh, predilection, pre predilection, what's the word? Prediction. Prediction, no, that's not it. But anyways, I don't know what my sense was, but I remember saying this to the team. Hey, we don't know how long this is gonna last. We can try and hold our breath until it's over, but it might not be over and we might run out of air. And so let's just make an adjustment right now. And that's what we did. I mean, we made an adjustment immediately because we didn't go, oh, there's only two weeks to flatten the curve. Okay, we can hold our breath for two weeks. We didn't even do that. We were like, we're changing right now. We're gonna start being proactive. That was definitely a very positive thing to do because we were ahead of the curve. 
we were ahead of it, which was which was good. When you look at let's let's take that a little bit, but just in general, cover and move. How does it help you? Relationships. I think too often people don't understand the value of what positive relationships can provide you. There is you can get anything accomplished if you have strong relationships. And I, it's not something people spend a lot of time prioritizing or maintaining. Uh, you know, we get really comfortable with our kids or our spouse or our friends of just these established relationships, and yet we're not prioritizing continuing to maintain or build those relationships. And with your teammates, there's nothing more powerful than a team of people that care about you and care about the mission and know that you care about them. So if I'm putting my energy and effort in focusing on the team and prioritizing the team and doing what I can to build relationships and support them, that level of trust is going to be far more valuable than anything else that I could do as far as, hey, I am your boss and this is what we're doing. Um, and so it's it's just working together as a team, recognizing that we have one mission and we're all going to work together to accomplish that mission. Yeah, when we talk about building trust, a lot of times we get asked about building trust. And I think what I talked through earlier was you and let's take you and me as a as an example i didn't know you i didn't trust you i didn't know you i have no relationship with you right i mean yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I literally don't know who you are and oh you're flynn cochran's wife and he was at team one and, and i know him and he's a good dude okay cool this is nothing i, I get that gives me zero to go off of so i meet you and it's like oh give a little bit of trust yep you take that you prove you're good to go and by the way when I give you a little bit of trust, I'm actually giving you it in a way that you realized I am actually giving you trust. Like, hey, oh, you're gonna let me do this project by myself or you're gonna let me handle this thing? So this is where we talk about that, the building of trust. It starts small and then it just builds from there and it snowballs. It's like an exponent, at least for me, uh, it's, it's pretty exponential. And what, so what did that look like from your perspective? You, early on, you started, and the way that you built that trust was I would call you and say, hey, how do you want me to handle this? And you would ask that one question over and over and over again, what do you think we should do? And you would ask me that question, and over time I've realized, okay, I've just gotta come prepared with an answer or a, a plan. And so I would say, hey, here's the problem, here's what I think we should do. And 98% of the time you'd say, cool, execute, let me know how I can support. And that built up that confidence and that trust in me. And so you gave me so much trust that over time, there's almost nothing I value more than like the trust I get from people that I care about. And you gave me so much trust in the beginning. And even when I failed, even when I made mistakes, you took ownership of it or Leif took ownership of it. And I was like, hold on, guys, I, I made this mistake that that continued to build in that trust to now you've created such a sense of loyalty. I mean, we joke about just the the team has this like real sense of loyalty to you and, and nothing was more, you know, there was a whole scenario where we got to see this play out where everyone was like coming to your defense because there is this such, such a strong sense of trust. Um, and that started from the beginning, just little ways in which you just let me run with it. And then you let me execute my plans, even though you probably had better ideas on how to solve those problems, but you would just say execute and you would just give me that trust to go do it. And over time that became something that, that I highly, highly value is your trust. You know, the, um, lately I've been talking a lot about the, the extreme ownership leadership loop and the last thing that I consider when I'm making a decision is how does this impact my relationship? And 
that's the most, it's the last thing I consider, but it's the heaviest weight of what I'm considering. And if I could convey, if hopefully I, I wrote about it from the new version of Leadership Strategy and Tactics, and hopefully I can convey it strongly enough that if you put the relationships as the priority, it helps so many decisions. Because just what you're talking about, you know, you might come to me and say, hey, Jocko, I think for Jocko Live, we should hand out uh, these uh, uh, small kettlebell keychains, right? And I might be thinking like, well, that's an extra expenditure. They're just gonna get lost. They're not gonna be high quality. Maybe they don't look that good or whatever. Maybe, I, look, it's, I don't even think it's that bad of an idea, but it's like not the priority at all. And so I might think, well, hey, Jamie, I think that's a waste of money. Or, hey, Jamie, I think it's going to. But what is that worth? How does that show you? What does that show you with my level of trust in you that you came out with an idea? You went and sourced the way to make this happen. You put together the budget. Then you came and presented me and said, hey, Jock, we got these cool kettlebell keychains that we're going to give out. And I go, no, I don't, I don't like that. So what, is, what, is that, what does that do? You, all of a sudden, I'm showing you that I don't trust your judgment. And really, what's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is people got a cool keychain. That, that's like the worst case scenario. But because I don't think it's a good idea, it wasn't my idea, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shut it down. And what I'm doing is I'm prioritizing my ego, I'm prioritizing my idea, I'm prioritizing my budget over my relationship with you, my trust in you. Now listen, if you came and say, hey, we're gonna give away a, a real kettlebell, you know, a real 24 kilogram kettlebell to every person that shows up at Jocko Live. It's going to be awesome. And I'll be like, hey, Jamie, like, can you run the numbers on that? Because th- th- those are expensive and they're also hard to ship. And also some people are flying in and they'll have to fly home with it. Tw- and I would ask you some questions and then you'd be like, you know, I ran the numbers on that. We're going to go with a keychain instead. Right. But just asking earnest questions, prioritizing a relationship is such a key component to think through. There's so many decisions that make themselves. There's so many decisions that make themselves if you prioritize the relationship over everything else. Now listen, like I said, if you come to me with an idea that's literally not gonna function, then I'm gonna have to ask you some earnest questions and, and hopefully, you'll see like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Now, maybe there's something I didn't think. Maybe you're like, hey, no, Jocko, don't worry about it. We got a sponsor. They're giving us all the kettlebells for free. We're getting 10,000 kettlebells. They're for free. They're gonna ship them for free. We just gotta deal with FedEx. They're gonna ship it free because they love they love Jocko and they love what you say, and so we're good to go. And I'd be like, wow, awesome. Everyone so, gets a free kettlebell. Yeah, everyone gets a, So if, if I ask an earnest question and you give me an answer, I'm ready to be like, okay, awesome, let's execute. So. Prioritizing the relationship, so important. Giving trust away is how you get that trust back. That's cover and move. What about simple? For me, simple in the way that we typically teach it with clients is about communicating effectively, being simple, clear, concise. I think about simple as it relates to the mission and plans. The mission has to be simple. And I think anyone at Echelon Front understands what our mission is because it's simple, clear, concise, and we can execute towards that mission. And once the mission is simple, I can now focus on the plans and processes and what we need to do to accomplish that mission. And those things need to also be simple. And I think that's what's awesome about working with a team that understands these principles because we're very good at coming up with simplified SOPs, simplifying processes, recognizing when something's too complex and maybe the team can't execute because they don't understand what's going on. And then ultimately, once you have simple missions, simple plans to execute on that mission, you have to be able to communicate that effectively in a simple, clear, and concise manner. And for me, what that what I've really learned is that I have to I have to adjust the way I communicate 
based on who I'm talking to. That's a component of simple. So the way that I communicate with you versus Leif is different. The way that I may communicate with Jen or with Jack is different based on what I know about them, based on our relationships. And so that simple component is really that test for me of am I communicating in a way that is effective with this particular individual or team? These, uh, the instinct that human beings have, generally speaking, to make things more complex is really a driving force in human nature. And look, I got to see this in the SEAL teams, these guys with these giant brains and their Ivy League education, and they'd come in with their engineering degree, and they would formulate plans that were just completely insane. And so, yes, keeping it, keeping things simple, and then the way you communicate. And yeah, absolutely. By the way, when I talk to the troops, I'm, I'm, I'm communicating in a certain way. When I talk to the admiral, I'm communi- communicating in a different way. The content of what I'm saying is not different. So I'm not telling the troops like, hey, this is a stupid thing to do, we shouldn't be doing it, and then saying to the admiral, hey, this is brilliant. No, I'm not doing that. I'm saying to the troops, hey, look, I'm not 100% sure why this is going on, let me try and find some answers. And I'm saying to the admiral, hey, sir, I actually need to find some answers about why we're doing this, because it doesn't make sense to me right now. I'm gonna, commu- and look, when I was talking to the troops, I might, drop a couple F-bombs, whatever. We're talking in a different, we're, we're using different communication tools. That's not to say I'm telling two different people two different things. It's not two-faced to communicate in diff- utilizing different methodologies. And I actually was telling Echo about this a while ago. Like I, I would talk to the admiral, I would talk to the captain, I would talk to my commanding officer, I would talk to the troops. I would walk out of a platoon meeting where I was talking to them in their language to go talk to the Admiral, where I would talk to him in his language. I wasn't saying anything different. I was saying the same thing. It's just in a different language. So that's what we have to learn how to do when it comes to simple communication. You need to communicate to people in their native tongue whenever possible. And you need to not utilize language that they don't understand that doesn't make sense to them and by the way that's up and down the chain of command you can talk to there's things that an admiral or things that a ceo will not understand there's language that you can use that they will not understand just like there's language you can use to the frontline troops that they won't understand so you as a leader have to be a i use this a lot you have to be a translator of sorts because sometimes i'm telling taking what the admiral said i'm translating it into what the troops can understand sometimes i'm taking what the troops said i'm translating it into what the admiral can understand that's what we become we become a a a filter that provides simplicity in language to the audience that we're talking to so that's a very astute um, perception you've got there Jamie well i actually learned that early on with you and Leif because you're both very different. And so I figured out that one, you were really always busy. And so I wanted you to pick up the phone when I called if I had a question. So I realized very quickly, okay, Jocko, I need to speak in bullet points. And I could do that and you wouldn't be offended. You wouldn't be like, are you okay? Or is there something wrong? Like you would just take it. I would just say, hey, A, B, C. And you'd be like, yes, no, yeah, let me think about it. And then we'd end the call. And you weren't short and it wasn't 
it wasn't a detriment to our relationship. I just figured out early on that I could talk to you in bullet points and we could just get some stuff done and move on. Uh, and if I did that and I've managed that the way I communicate with you based on your schedule, you pick up the phone every time I called. And in fact, now people will get a hold of me to be like, hey, can you get a hold of Jocko? Because you'll answer my call. And then Leif needs a lot more information. I have to anticipate that when I go into a conversation with Leif, we're gonna spend 20 minutes probably talking about my family and what's going on and what I did for the weekend. <laughs> and just that Southern hospitality, it's just gonna be a different conversation. Sometimes, you know, Leif calls and I'll be like, all right, how much time do I have? And can I take this? Um, but even with Leif, like I will know that I need to come in that conversation prepared to answer questions he's gonna have and, and, and have a little more information for him than I may need for you. But I figured out, very early on that if I tried to communicate that way with you, you would be like, hey, I don't have time for this. So I just had to adjust. You, ha you It's up to you when you're communicating to adjust to the person that you're talking to. And too often we think it's up to them. Like I'm communicating clearly and then I'm being frustrated because my team's not doing what I asked them to do. And it's like, well, probably because of the way you communicated it. You didn't think about the the receiving end of that and what it how it comes across. Yeah, prioritize and execute. Detaching from emotion. There's a million things at any given time that I have to manage or that people have to manage. We have these overwhelming plates of responsibility and the only way to recognize the thing that we need to put our focus and effort into is learning how to detach from our emotion because our emotions pull us in and suck us into the chaos of all these things that are happening. And when we're in that place, we can't see the truth of what needs to get done. So we have to learn how to manage our emotions so that we can take that step back and detach and recognize, okay, this thing right here is gonna have the biggest impact on the mission and then focus of effort on executing on that task. Uh, we're not naturally good multitaskers ta uh, multi um, as people like to think they are. And so we have to be able to detach long enough and then focus effort on executing on that thing before we move on to the next. People ask about what's the difference, what do, can you utilize these principles when you're leading your family? And I'm like, yes, you can. And they say, is there any differences? And I say, there actually is. Mm -hmm. And the big difference is that when you're dealing with your family, you're gonna be much more emotional and it's gonna take extra effort and extra discipline to be able to detach and not get emotional. Like that's what it's gonna take. That's the biggest difference. There's a little other little subtleties, but essentially the principles are the same. The biggest difference is when you're, you know, if Jamie's working for me and she does something really stupid and she's getting us in legal trouble, I can be like, hey Jamie, you're fired. Like, okay, we, you know, good luck, carry on. When your kid does something stupid, you're like, oh, you can't fire your kids. You're stuck with them. You can't fire your spouse. You're stuck with them. So you you get more emotional because you're what are you doing? And you plus you care about your kids so much. You're like, wait, if you do if you're doing that thing right now, that's gonna that's gonna put you on a bad course. And you get emotional. And then when you get emotional, you make that bad decisions. So think about that when you're dealing with the people that are closest to you. Those are the people that make you the most emotional. People that you don't care about, it's easy to make. That's what's what you, you type a leadership question in a chat GPT, it's gonna give you a good answer because it has no emotions. It's just like, oh, the person has been unproductive for three months, they should be fired, boom, done. Like, okay, cool, we'll execute on that. Uh, but if you take a human being, you're like, oh, this person has been unproductive for three months, but guess what, what's going on in their personal life? What, oh, they've got a, their mom's sick. 
They gotta go to the hospital every day while their mom's going through chemo. Oh, and you're just gonna fire them because they've been unproductive? Well, how's that gonna work out? What kind of human being are you? So think about that. There's a little bit of emotions involved with the stuff. I always say detach from your emotions, but you're not decoupling from your emotions. Yeah. Emotions have to be part of the calculus. They have to be part of the calculus, even with your team. You know, you have to realize, oh, if I, we just got done with the muster and all of a sudden we get tasked with some big project and Jamie hasn't had one day off and I go, hey, Jamie, we got this project due tomorrow. I got to recognize that she's going to be mad at me and I need to put that in the calculus. I need to say, hey, Jamie, look, I know you're going to be mad because you just got back off this trip and I know you got some things that you're going to do with your kids. We got this project due. If you can help me with this. Next weekend is going to be a five-day weekend. Can you work with me? And you're like, I got you. <laughs> our our emotions typically help us identify that there's a problem. Our emotions are really important to helping us recognize, okay, this is a priority. This is a major deal. But we don't make good decisions when we're emotional. So to your point, you can't decouple the emotions. They typically are an indicator that, hey, there's a problem here we need to solve. But we have to be detached enough to be able to see how we can actually solve this problem. And we can't do that when we're caught up in the emotional state. Yeah. Um, how about that decentralized command? I think you're, uh, <laughs> you've, gotten to, you've gotten to see decentralized command in its full force from I me. I learned from the best. <laughs> yeah, empower other people to lead. Empower your team to lead, to step up and take things on, to solve problems, give them as much ownership in the projects and plans as you possibly can. And that, What's really difficult about that is letting go. At least for me, it's letting go. Like I want to be in, in all, involved in all those things, especially like you use the muster in, as an example. The first time I went to the muster and I wasn't doing all the things I had done the muster previous, like you start to get the sense of like, well, wait, what am I here for anymore? And that that's an ego play. Uh, but the more that I've let go, the more that I recognize I get to see other people step up into roles and take on responsibility and execute and see them thrive, that that just is way more rewarding than me stepping in and solving the problem and being the one to save the day and do this awesome thing that it's about the team and I get to see them just feel valued and and contribute to the mission and that is so much more uh, powerful than anything else I could offer them so giving them as much responsibility as, as I possibly can and empowering them to make decisions and solve problems and get things done uh I have an app on my phone that reports when uh, no, sorry, it's not an app. It's an email. It's like an automatic email that reports expenditures from my bank, which is our bank, which is, and so <laughs> this is my, this is my, I guess my evidence of decentralized command. I'll just be like, whatever, on a trip or something, I'll pick up my phone, I'll look at it, and they'll be like, uh, you just, you just wired $842,000 to this account. And I'm always like, oh, okay, cool. And uh, what is it? I think, have I upped your limit, your spending limit to a million dollars Yeah, yet? yep, you, you told me I have I have leeway to spend up to a million dollars before I have to get permission. <laughs> and I think in the earlier days, I was calling you for like $100 expenditures. I'm like, hey, I gotta buy this thing, it's a hundred bucks, and now I've got up to a million dollars, so. Mm, I'm, yeah, like, right? I'm like, Jamie, if you need to spend more, if you need to spend more than a million dollars, can you let me know what that's about? Just you know, I just gotta <laughs> yeah, know about that one. I think and it was like six months ago. It was seven fifty. So I'm really like, yeah. I'm really getting there yeah. now. We're at a million. Yeah, but that's you know, like you said in the beginning, I'm watching. Like, hold on, what did she spend one hundred and forty dollars on? You know what I mean? What's, what are you doing? 
and you're like, well, I had to print out, you know, copies of the book for blah, blah. okay. Okay, so she's actually got good judgment. Oh, the, hey, there's a $1,200 charge on here. What's this for? Oh, we had to get this thing for the client. Otherwise, oh, okay. So then it's like over time, I'm looking at your judgment. And by the way, when you're doing that, I'm not like, what the hell did you spend that money? I might be like, hey, hey, what's this expense for? And so then you realize I'm not jumping down your throat. So you're starting to trust that I'm going to listen to what you have to say. And before you know it, I got Jamie Cochran wiring money. $890,000 to some random place. I'm going, what is it not? I actually don't even ask anymore. Yeah. Well, there's a triple effect because you implemented that with me. And over time, I got a little more comfortable being able to do those things and make those decisions. And now I see it with Jen. And the real trick is just put something in your team that you know is going to, I mean, Jen stresses over $10. Mm-hmm. Like she can get a deal and save 50 cents on like a, a product that we're buying in bulk. And she's like, Stoked. So she's such a good steward of our money that she has almost unlimited leeway too. Because I know she's not going to be out there making crazy decisions. And you figured out early on that I wasn't going to make crazy decisions. And I was actually very conscientious, uh, conscientious about what we were spending and on what you know what it was and how much we were spending. Um, that you gave me a lot of freedom in the early days. Yeah, and you got to get comfortable with some level of risk. I mean, I'm sure. Sometime in the next year, somebody's gonna buy something and I'm gonna be like, did we really need to buy it? I'm sure, like there's somebody's <laughs> gonna spend $3,000 on something and you've gotta be comfortable with that level of risk. And here's why I'm okay with it. If I wasn't okay with, hey, someone made it, so, you know, someone bought a $2,800 meal with a client that, you know, okay, cool. There's, that's gonna happen, that's gonna happen. And the, the thing is, if I was paranoid about that, we would literally just not do anything. Yeah. We would just not do anything because can you imagine if you were sending me approvals every time we spent more than a thousand dollars? Oh my gosh, we'd would, never get anything done. Nothing would happen. <laughs> and so it's so, but you, you the financial um, example's really clear, but it's not just the financial example. It's like everything that we're doing, there's 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 decisions that are being made, there's things that are being executed that they need to be executed, they need to be executed quickly. And if I was trying to micromanage things, it just it, it just would absolutely never work. We wouldn't be able to do anything, we wouldn't be able to advance. Not to mention, I mean, you take that's echelon front, you throw Jocko Fuel, yeah. you throw Origin on that, you throw Jocko Podcast, you throw Jocko Publishing, like there's a lot of things that are, a lot of decisions that are being made that are being made at the level, at the point of friction, which is awesome, which is, which is how things, which is when people ask me like, how do you do all these things? I'm like, oh, I do all these things, cover, move, simple, prioritize, execute, decentralize, command. That's what I do. That's how I, that's how I make it happen. That's how my team makes it happen because we're not gonna sit here and micromanage. So those things, again, can you give decentralized command when you first meet someone and you've never worked with them before and you don't understand their judgment, you don't understand how their mind works? That can be a challenge. But once you understand how their mind works, once you built up that trust, you can move forward. And then once you establish culture inside of an organization, then decentralized command can really be can really be utilized. And the, again, using the muster as, as an example, the first or whatever, by the time we were at like the fourth or fifth muster, everything was now, maybe it was the sixth muster or seventh muster, everything was now just like super smooth. Yeah and super squared away. And you know, we would get our feedback from the, from the uh, attendees and they'd be like, this is the, the most well-run event I've ever been to. And what's cool about that is, I never like sat you and Jen and your team down and said like, this needs to be the most 
well-run event anyone's ever been to. I didn't tell you that. You already knew. Your team already knew. So they knew on the front lines when someone says to one of the one of the frontline people like, hey, I, I'm supposed to be checking in my hotel and m- m- my luggage is in the wrong area. Uh, what can I, can you guys help me? Their attitude isn't like, well, no, that's your luggage. No, their attitude is like, oh, we want this to be the best thing. Hey, hold on a second. We've got a driver. They can drive you out to the airport. We can get that luggage picked up. Do you want to go with? So that's the attitude. And when everyone understands what the culture is, everyone understands what the mission is, then decentralized command just works. Yep. You said once at an executive team uh, meeting, you said, I can only do the things that only I can do. And what you were saying basically is like, you have a lot of things you're managing. I mean, the things on your plate are crazy. And you just mentioned some of those things. And so it was really this uh, permission to the rest of us, like, go do everything else that you guys can answer and do and accomplish. Go do it and come to me for the things that only I can do. And there are certain things that only you can do as the CEO of our company. But everything else, you give us complete trust and authority to go make those decisions. And that trust, once again, is so valuable to everyone on the team that when we go to a muster, you never had to say what the standard was because you set the standard in the way that you operated and managed this company that we all felt this instinct of we have to this has to be the best thing ever because I don't want to let Jocko down I don't want to do a disservice to this message that is a life changer a game changer so it started with the precedent you set and the example that you set and then you just gave up the reins and let us run with it and we felt that sense of I have to do this right because I was I was entrusted in this we talk about ego a lot and again the reason we have to talk about ego a lot is because that's a human instinct that people have their instinct is to get to believe their own hype that's what our instinct is and especially when you're successful you think well you're damn right i'm successful i i should be i'm pretty awesome and then the next thing you know you're believing your own hype and that's a problem you have considering you know you're street a student gymnast class president or were you, were you class president uh, I was in, yes, I was class president. I wasn't uh, the like for the whole school. Okay. Yeah. So, you, but you know, you've been in like, you've been doing really well. When you came on board, when you came on board, you didn't know we were going to be talking about ego, but you had the instinct to be humble enough to be like, okay, I can do this job. Oh, you want me to answer the phone? You want me to book your, your flight, Leif? Okay, I'll do it, right? <laughs> you you were humble enough to do that. Where did you pick up that sense of humility and how has your how has your perspective of ego become clarified while you've been at Echelon Front? Yeah, listen, I am actually a very competitive person and I definitely have an ego. A hundred percent it exists. I mean, that's the only reason like why I ever wanted to do all the stuff I wanted to do because there was this ego sense of like, yes, I can do it all and I can be good at it all. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I also had incredible examples in my life of humility. My mom and dad once again set this heavy tone of like, hey, work ethic and honesty and they were some of the most humble uh, people, if not the most humble people I've been around. And they, they had very different lives than I did. They had a difficult life growing up. My mom ran away when she was like 15. She put herself in foster care. My dad was poor um, and just really struggled. And so they propagated that story with our family a lot. And I understood where they came from. And that was not my experience at all. If anything, kind of the world revolved around me as a young kid. Um, But 
over time, because of that example, I recognize that the ego pushes you to want to win and want to succeed. And that definitely exists in me. But if I wanted to be successful, I had to get really good at managing and subordinating my ego because I learned very early on that that wasn't going to help me build relationships and help me along the path of of what I wanted to accomplish. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised. Why? Because you're like, you're growing up right and you were like the star of this and the leader of that and the captain of this and your the world revolved around you the way your parents treated you like everything that you've that you experienced i've known a lot of people that grew up like that and they are not humble <laughs> i'm just telling you like a lot of people that grow up like that they're not humble they think they're the center of the world from the time they're born and it really hurts them later on in life but for some reason you were able to identify that sense of humility which is you're very i don't know if you're lucky or what maybe like you said i guess you're the way your parents instilled that in you um but yeah there's plenty of people that are the star of this the captain of that uh you know this the seals is filled with guys like this right <laughs> they were the captain of this they were the they were the quarterback here and they were the they were did all these things and they were just winning and when they win, they just think, oh, I obviously deserve to be worshipped. So, well, let's go ahead and proceed to worship me, everybody. And it, it hurts, you know? And there's people like this in the, certainly in the business world as well. Like, you, you know, you rose up through the ranks in your company. Well, why'd you get promoted? Because I'm awesome. Oh, why'd you get selected as the as the chief operating? Because I'm awesome. Why'd you get selected as the CEO? Because I'm awesome. Well, you know, why'd you get these investors? I got these investors because I'm awesome. And so that can snowball and get out of control, obviously. So... That lesson that your parents taught you, I'm, I guess it's your parents. I think it's, it's a combination of the example that I had, but also like I, I had all those things. And then I moved to LA and very quickly was kind of reminded as a, as a very young girl that I wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was. Like I moved, you know, little fish now in a big pond and I was like, oh, I'm not the best singer. I'm not the best at this. I'm not the best at this. And I just started a little bit of failure, you know, and and recognizing, okay, I had a lot of really cool things growing up and I was really good in a lot of things. I wasn't the greatest. I wasn't the best at anything. Um, but I th- I think it was the combination of my parents' example and then getting a phase of my life where I really started to recognize, like, you know what? I am not nearly as good as I thought I was. And that set me up for success when I started to take on other opportunities and and grow in my life because I started being willing to accept that. And it's okay. I don't have to be the best. I just have to work hard. I just have to perform. And if I do that, I can accomplish anything that I actually want to try to do. And every time I just focused on the work, and the work ethic component that my parents taught me, I succeeded and things happened for me. Did you identify that when you were reading Extreme Ownership for the first time and you see like a chapter about ego? Were you like, oh, I relate to this? Yes. I remember reading it for the first time and just that first chapter of Extreme Ownership just blowing my mind. Like, okay, my parents always really taught me about honesty, but I hadn't really ever thought about it in the way of me making decisions or taking ownership like that's that's a component of honesty being honest with yourself to say hey i screwed this up and as i did that i started to realize that hey that's a big ego hit to say this this is my fault or i have to take ownership of this but the more that i started to dip my 
foot in that pool, the more I started to realize that it actually was an ego boost because I started to feel a a lot more confident to say, yeah, no, I screwed that up. Yeah, let me take on ownership of that to the point now where there's no ego involved. I'll take ownership all day long. If anything, it's like, you don't want to take ownership? I'll take it. Give it to me. I'll, I'll take it all day long because I know that if I do that, I can solve the problem. And so the ego component, which still exists, I still want to win. I still am very competitive. Uh, I am capable now of subordinating that ego enough to recognize that the ego will get in the way of actually accomplishing the mission. And I care more about the mission than my own sense of self. Yeah, it's a wild thing to say that there's people that will literally, their ego will kill them. Like they will make decisions and they won't want to back down from their decision and they will like in combat get people killed or get themselves killed because they didn't want to subordinate their ego and it's crazy so if that can happen in combat it can happen anywhere it can certainly happen in your finance company or your manufacturing company these things happen gotta watch out for that now on the academy i was a while ago you and i were having a conversation and it was i think you were trying to explain to me that from a from a female perspective this stuff doesn't always look the same and you and I, I think I made, did I make you, we, we didn't agree <laughs> at first. No, it was actually at a muster and we were having some conversation and I think I brought up like, hey, maybe we should do like a women's like breakout session at the muster or we could do something because I was looking at the the stats for the muster and we were about like six, seven, eight percent women and I was like, okay, there's a big disparity here. What if we added a component to the event that was like women only, like a panel or something? And we got into this conversation and you kept saying like, no, it's all the same, it's the same. And in the moment, I wasn't hearing exactly what you were saying. And so I went back to my room and I remember feeling frustrated because I was like, it was the first time I felt this disconnect of like, I don't think I agree with Jocko. Like he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. This is different for women. He doesn't understand that I am carrying almost the full mental load of like managing our household. I'm managing groceries and dinner and taking kids to school and doctor's appointments and dentists. And I'm also managing Echelon Front. And he has no idea what that's actually like. And so I remember feeling a little bit of like initial resentment of like, it's easy for you to just say it's the same. And then we went the next day to the muster and I'm listening and taking notes and you're talking about the principles and it hit me and I realized what you were saying was not that my experience is different is, you know, you were, you were, weren't saying that my experience wasn't different than yours. You were simply saying that the way that you solve those problems was the same. You have to apply the principles of extreme ownership. And that kind of opened my mind to, okay, he's right. My experience might be different. My experience uh, may be more challenging or and sometimes feel maybe unfair, but the way that I solve those problems, it, it is the exact same that we would teach anyone. And so we started thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we get women more on board with being open to this content because I think there was some barrier with the combat military component that was- <laughs> The barrier was my face. Yeah. <laughs> and they just, you know, we, we weren't seeing a lot of women. I mean, and the women who were a part of this movement were some of the coolest women I had ever met. Like they were in the game. And so we needed to find a way to open the door to for women to understand that this content was absolutely for them uh, and that there was some really cool principles out there that could help them solve the problems that they were dealing with. Yeah, and so I think what cracked open my mind, because I was still, 
you know, you said, well, maybe we should do a breakout for women. And I was totally against that because we're at an event together. Like, I'm not breaking out people based on anything. You're like, you're people. We're all people. But what kind of cracked my mind open a little bit to become open to the idea of like, you eventually want to do an online thing called the Women's Assembly. And what cr- kind of cracked my mind open was jujitsu. Mm. Because in jujitsu, if you show up like, at a lot of schools, a lot of academies, they have women's only jujitsu classes. And usually what those women's only jujitsu classes are is a way for women to get into jujitsu so that they understand it. And once they understand jujitsu, they're just training in the regular classes. Most of the time, most women make that transition to where they're just training regular classes. Some of them don't, but most of them do. And so I started to recognize, oh, what Jamie wants to do is do a women's jujitsu class for leadership where people go and they, they're comfortable and they look, there's not too many women that look at my head <laughs> and say, oh yeah, I identify with that or I could relate to that. But they look at you and they think, oh yeah, this, this is a woman, she's a mom, she's in business, she's got a lot of things going on, I can relate to that. So just like the jujitsu idea of a women's only class, that's the way I looked at it in my head. I was like, okay, you wanna do something for women that's gonna make, sure, make them feel comfortable coming into the jujitsu academy, feel comfortable coming into the extreme ownership academy? Okay. Let's go for it. And then eventually, and now you've got a, a women's summit coming. We do. So, hey, look, you've got women comfortable from an online with the with the assembly that you're doing, but now you're doing a women's summit. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we started the live monthly free sessions for the women's assembly two and a half years ago. And we just thought, you know, we'll throw it out there and see if we can get some people to join. And that communities started to grow and we have like 7,000 people that are a part of that assembly committee. We've done free sessions every month for the last two and a half years. And we started to see the impact of the musters because we went from 8% to 12% to 15% to the last muster where we had 22% women. So we started to see the adjustments that we made pay off in like more women coming to events and recognizing that this content was for them. And then as a part of that, we started to get sort of a, a call to action or a request of, hey, we'd like to do an all women's event. Uh, there's also a lot of men in our network that are like, hey, how do I introduce this to my daughter or wife? Coming from me, it's not a great thing when you're like, hey, you should really read this book on taking ownership. And so the Women's Assembly has been- Written by Neanderthals. Written by two Neanderthals. (laughs) And it's been a really cool way to kind of introduce that in in a more subtle way. And so we started thinking about doing this live event with women who want to come learn about leadership in business and life. And as a part of that, we're going to obviously teach the principles of extreme ownership, but we're also going to bring in some women who have interesting stories, interesting perspectives to share just some things that are more relevant to women in leadership. When does it take place? September 14th through 16th in Phoenix. In Phoenix, Arizona. Yep. And it's, who, who is it, uh, who's, it, like, give me an example of, are you going to go over the fundamental principles that we talk about? Do you have anyone else going to speak? Yep. So myself and Corey Mize and Meg Miller from the Echelon Front team, we all are the the women leadership instructors at Echelon Front. So we are going to focus on introducing and talking through, just like you would get at the muster, the core of our content, the foundations of extreme ownership and these principles. And then 
inserted throughout the session, we have some cool guests coming to share in their unique perspectives, a lot of which are very closely tied to what we teach as well. So Ryan Mannion, who's been on this podcast before, uh, she's going to come and give a, a, a keynote. Debbie Lee, Mama Lee is coming to talk. Um, and then we've got this wonderful speaker, Latanya Sumter, who has now been on the Women's Assembly free sessions twice and just has this incredibly charismatic personality and people are drawn to. And she actually, we brought her back from request. So we're bringing in a couple different people. We're bringing in a panel of Echelon Front Wives. So we've got Helen Willink locked in to do this, which I thought was going to be... <laughs> I don't know how you pulled that off, honestly. <laughs> to her credit, she was like, yes. She didn't even fight me on it. I thought I was going to have to really go to bat for this. But Helen and myself and Iris Gardner, who's amazing, uh, and then Amanda Donnell and hopefully uh, Cody's wife, Paige, we're going to do a panel on sort of the military wives' perspective as like the wives of Echelon Front, all of all of whom have been the, on the home front side of the combat that you guys were serving and just have a unique perspective to answer questions and help women understand how to cultivate some of that emotional independence and talk through these leadership principles from our perspective, both in the military and now at Echelon Front. I don't know how you got my wife to say yes to this. <laughs> Dude, I was preparing for like this indirect approach. I, I had like the script in mind and I called her and I like laid it out. I'm like, hey, just hear me out. And I go through the plan and she was in her lovely, sweet voice was like, yes. She's like, I would do that. And I think she's she would never come on here. She's made that very clear. Like, oh, yeah. I will not come on this podcast. I asked her, I said, listen, if I write down questions and you write answers, and I'll read them on the podcast. You don't have to come on. Would you do that? And she's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's like, what else can I do, right? There's nothing else I can do. And so, yeah, I was pretty surprised that she, because she's very a uh, private person, and she doesn't like any limelight, and she doesn't like to, you know, do this kind of thing. So, yeah. Good job. But people want to hear from her. I know they because do. Because you're such I want to a hear from unique. Her. Yeah, and you're such a unique being that people are like, "What is his wife like?" Which I can attest she is the one of the greatest people I know. She's one of the kindest people that I know. For sure. And she's a total badass. And you wouldn't know it because she's so humble and so sweet. But uh I asked her to come and she agreed and I maybe it was the fact that it was multiple people on stage. She wasn't going to be by herself. And we're just answering questions and I think she loved the mission of helping women. Mm -hmm be successful in their lives and she had a perspective to offer so she she said yes yeah so that's cool too that's and a I, reason to come just for that yeah for <laughs> sure i kind of want to come <laughs> but uh the, yeah you know we also have three daughters two of which are adult daughters so she probably can connect to to wanting to help out you know um young ladies and with their as they as they go through whatever they're going through and and moms you know I mean, so I think it's going to be awesome. I think everyone who has agreed to participate so far, and we, we have more surprises coming, but a lot of that was they loved the mission. They were like, oh, I get to go speak to a group of women who are looking for answers to solve problems in their lives, in business and in life. And I have an opportunity to not only teach and hopefully inspire them, but be inspired by the atmosphere of this group of people coming together, rallied around this mission of extreme ownership. So I am so excited. I think it's awesome too, the the fact that extreme ownership is clearly, you know, meant initially for people that are in a leadership position, basically in the workplace. That's basically what it's for. But 
dang if it doesn't apply to everything and every aspect of your life and the way you're operating and interacting with your family for sure, the way you're interacting with your community for sure, the amount of people that have talked to us, talked to me, talked to you and explained how they implemented extreme ownership with their husband, with their wife, with their kids and it it's a game changer. You wrote a book that was based on helping, I mean, one section in each chapter is titled Application of Business. But I learned really early on, and it was something you said to me, because I was dealing with you know, a phase, my oldest was in a phase, and I was struggling with that, and I was talking to you about just some frustrations, and you were like, hey, these same principles apply. And I reread the book, and when I got to Application of Business, I just simply was like, Application of Home. And I started to recognize that this book was written for businesses, but it's even more important at home. And we see people crushing it in their business, taking these principles, applying it, having so much success, and yet they get home and they they hit these barriers, they hit these walls. Because as you said earlier, your emotions and your ego is so much more involved that it's more difficult. But the payoff at home is even greater than what you could get at home at work. And I've seen that with my kids, that when I do the right things, when I apply these principles, I see them model that behavior back. And there's no greater gift I could give my kids than teaching them and helping them understand this idea of ownership and this recognition that I can own all the problems that I'm facing and I can take ownership of solving those problems. No greater gift. Yeah, when they follow that example, it's incredible. I This is a little bit tangential, but it's a little bit on point too. I walked up to my garage gym the other day and I walked in there and my 13-year-old daughter, she was in there listening to Led Zeppelin and doing squats. You know what I mean? Bruh. Amazing. Let's, you know what Amazing. I mean? Sure. Are we in the game? <laughs> you know, game. does that, you think that I didn't like get a tear in my non-shooting eye when that <laughs> happened? I was like, yep. <laughs> you having a good workout? She's like, yeah. She gave me a high five. She's looking jacked. You see what I'm saying? So yeah, that the other thing, I, I said this uh, a while ago. I don't know what event we did, but we went to a jujitsu place afterward, and I said, hey, these principles from jujitsu apply to your life. And I said, and unfortunately, some people don't take the principles from jujitsu and apply them to their life, and there's black belts out there that are black belts on the mats and they're white belts in life and they make mistakes that you shouldn't make. And it's the same thing what you just said, like there's business people that are doing a great job with their team, they're doing a great job with their business, they're doing a great job with their clients from applying these principles and then they don't apply them with their wife, they don't apply them with their kids and it just goes, it's terrible to watch. It's absolutely terrible to watch. And it's, it sounds callous. It sounds callous to say, well, you know, you, if, you, if you treat your kid like your employee, then that's what you should be doing. Well, actually, if you, ta- if you listen to us on how we actually say you should treat your employee, which is you should respect them, you should listen to them, you should explain the why, you should, you should allow them to influence you, like all those things that we talk about, if you treat your kid like that, they're gonna be stoked. They're gonna be stoked. And so will the people that work for you. And by the way, this is another thing that's, I, I have to explain to people now is like they'll think there's a difference between the way I treat my boss and the way I treat my peer and the way I treat my subordinate. That I'm, oh, well, if it's your boss, you got to do you treat them this way. Now, listen, we talked about communication. I might communicate, but the way I treat them with respect, the way I listen to them, 
the way I care about them, up, down, across the chain of command, it's the same. And so when you take those principles and you apply them to your children and you apply them to your spouse, like what does it make sense to treat your children the same way as you treat your spouse? Actually, actually, listen to your spouse, listen to your kids. Allow your spouse to influence you, allow your kids to influence you. Treat your spouse with respect, treat your kids with respect. Now listen, if they're four years old and they're doing something stupid, you can't let them play in the street. I I get it, I get it. And by the way, there's some there's some gambles you can take there. There's some risk you can allow for. Leif's got a good story. His daughter didn't want to wear flip-flops across the cactus-covered grass or whatever. And she's, you know, he says, hey, put your flip-flops on. I don't want to. And he was like, okay. She goes running across the grass. Boom, she got a feet fill of cactus or whatever they got down there in Tejas. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he, he, she's going to get a lesson learned. And he's listening to what she has to say. And so when he listens... She's going to listen more. So, yeah, these things do work up, down, across the chain of command at work, up, down, across the chain of command on your pickup basketball team, and up, down, across the chain of command in your house. So utilize them. They're there. We are giving these away. We are giving these away. You can buy the book for 20 bucks. You can get all the books for 50 bucks probably. You can listen to podcasts, it's free. You can go to the Women's Assembly online, it's free. You can go to the First Responders online, it's free. Like, you can listen to this podcast, it's free. There's all kinds of, we're trying to give this away. I remember it was probably second or third podcast that Echo and I were recording. And I had some nugget, some golden nugget of leadership. And I was thinking to myself like, oh, should I share this right now? Because like we have Echelon Front, and Echelon Front people pay money to, to learn this stuff, and if I'm just giving it away. And I, I made a conscious decision. I, was, I said to myself, you know what? The best thing I can do is try and get this information to as many people as possible. That's the best thing to do, and that's what I'm going to do. And I haven't held back anything, obviously. <laughs> There's hundreds and hundreds of hours of this stuff. But to get this information out there, that's the goal. And, and so... We're giving it away. The reason we're giving it away is because we know it's going to make people's lives better. And you get to, you get, you're on the receiving end of a lot of the people that message us about how it's helped them. Kids, adults, moms, dads, CEOs, frontline workers. It's everybody. Yeah, you've said this before, and it's my one of my favorite quotes of yours, but if you do the right things for the right reasons, you will win in the end. And I think you've always kind of taken that stance of, I'm going to give this stuff out because our goal and our mission is to help as many people as possible understand these principles, learn how to apply it in their lives so that they can see the impact, but not just in their own lives, in the lives of the people around them. And one of my favorite things about what I get to do here, especially earlier on, is I was always the first point of contact when people would reach out and say, let me share with you how these principles have changed my life, which we have heard that I couldn't even count the number of times someone has said, changed my life. And it was really them recognizing that they could take ownership of their situation, whether it was their health or their addiction or their family or their work or whatever it was that they were trying to solve, people started coming out and sharing these stories. And we realized early on, okay, we have to start using that internally to help propagate our story and we can give this out for free and it's not gonna impact our ability to grow and and build a business because we have people here we have to take care of. That if anything, it amplified that effort because we had people out there 
sharing in their message of, hey, I implemented ownership in my life and here's the outcome of what happened. And it changed my life. It changed my life. And so like I resonated with that when I started getting this feedback. I'm like, yes, I see that. You're totally right. It's a game changer. So, um, you know, we've said it before, but when you start taking ownership and you really get to the point where ownership is your instinct, everything in your life gets better. Every single thing. And maybe not easier. Definitely not easier. I think ownership is hard in a lot of ways, much more difficult than just taking the easy out of casting, you know, letting someone else be the problem. But it gets better because yeah, you can say, actually solve it. It's harder at first. And then over time, it gets easier and easier and easier. And there's people that talk to us that say that these principles change their lives. And there's also people that talk to us that say these principles save their lives. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have told me that what we do save their lives. And what I tell them every time, which is the truth, we didn't save your life. I didn't save your life. The book didn't save your life. The podcast, you did it. You you saved your life. You changed your life. You took this information and applied it. That's you. We appreciate the compliment, but that's what it takes. It is on you. You can read this material. You can study this material. You can listen to this material. You have to take action with this material. Otherwise, if things aren't going to change. So keep that in mind. That is one of the keys. That is one of the keys to moving forward. Some other keys to moving forward, I think, for you. Um, you, from, a, from like a, a health perspective, you kind of get after it, don't you? I try. <laughs> I mean, you run marathons, right? Yeah. You got like a CrossFit gym in your house. Yeah. Um, you do jujitsu. Yeah. Can I get a hell yeah, please, Echo Charles? <laughs> <laughs> You're a blue belt in jujitsu. Reluctant blue belt, but yes. You don't get a blue belt unless you're a blue belt. I know, I know. I've got to put my faith and trust in our instructor, but I still feel every day that I have to earn that. I have not, in my mind, earned that blue belt. But don't you do well competitively against other blue belts? I mean, yeah, I do fine on the mats. I think for me, it's more about consistency. And jujitsu is one of those things that I love it so much. But it's, and it's the only thing in my life that's really just for me. Like I get to show up and I get a moment where my brain turns off and I get to just focus on what's happening and like I need to try to survive this. And I love it so much. But my journey in jujitsu is very much like a, I wouldn't even call it a roller coaster because I'm not like, it's like I'm I'm on the bus and I'm going and it's going great and then I get off the bus and I wait. And I go like three, four months sometimes before I get back in How the come? gym. Because if there's one thing when I have, you know, implementing, prioritize and execute, if mm-hmm. there's one thing that I need to get off my plate in order to focus on Echelon Front and my family, which are the two main priorities, mm-hmm. it's the easiest thing to put on the back burner. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is I look at the week and I'm like, well, I can only train once this week. And then I convince myself that like, is it really worth it to go the one time? And then all of a sudden it's been three weeks and now I'm dealing with like kind of the ego of like, I have to walk back in the gym and tell Gustavo like, hey, I'm back. Um, So I do that a lot. I kind of go in and out. And so when I got my blue belt, I was like, I really feel like I need to be a lot more consistent before you can pass this off to me. Um, And so he did the right thing though because it's it's fueled the sense of like all right now i gotta earn it like if he's gonna give this to me i want to i don't want to let him down mm. i've got to actually show up and, and earn it so 
it might be an ebb and flow. It might be a long journey before I get to, you know, where I don't even, I don't even know if black belt's in like my purview. Like it'll be a long journey as a blue belt and it may take me a while to get there, but it's just a matter of just showing up to your point earlier and just like walking through the door. And every time I do it after a stint of being out, I like walk back in and I'm like, what am I doing? Like I miss this so much. It is a, it, it it's such an amazing sport. Every woman should go try a jujitsu class. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. They uh, should. <laughs> yeah, I, I was chuckling the other day because I got a text at 10 o'clock at night that said like, hey, Jocko, I was just at this jujitsu class and the instructor said that if they're, if they're just totally, you're in a bad, really r- bad situation, what I do is survive. What was it? Survive yeah. I was and then stabilize, stabilize yeah. and then Defend, advance. So, then advance. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, survive. So, I was struggling. Okay. I was struggling with a particular position and I was it was five minute rounds just back to back to back and I was getting my ass handed to me. And I was like, all right. So I went over to one of the black belts, Randy, and I was like, hey, I'm really struggling on this position. What advice can you give me? And he gave me something like tactical to do. And then he was like, listen, I think about jujitsu as survive, defend, advance. And you're constantly going back and forth in those things. So you might survive and then you get a chance to now defend the move. And then something happens and they make a shift and you have to go back to survival. And I started thinking about it as just life like that's how we manage sometimes chaotic things are happening and your first instinct is you just have to survive this then you get to a safe space now you can start to defend and make a position and start you know in jujitsu shrimping out or doing little movements to try to get yourself in a better position and then once you've defended properly you can now advance and actually solve the problem and I tried it in the next five minute round and he was totally right like I just kept thinking okay survive protect my neck now I gotta defend hands on the hip let's do this and now I've got to advance I can actually sweep and, and get into a better position so it was a it, it just prove the point that you've always made that the lessons in jujitsu apply so well in leadership they're the it's so connected when did you start training um it's probably been is that when you got to virginia no i started in seattle at a women's it was a women's only (laughs) see we had to get you in the door yep and i found a community there and just loved it and then i started doing the co-ed classes there and then I moved to Virginia Beach and I called you and I was like, hey, what gym should I go to? And you were like, Gustavo Machado's, hands down. So I showed up there and I've been training. I mean, it was COVID, so it was a little bit of a weird time, but I've been training there for three years on and off. Yeah, well, there you go. Awesome. And that's just a little message for everybody, for everybody, so. even everyone at this table. If a little time goes by and you haven't gotten on the mats of justice, no problem. go get back on the mats of justice, Jump right? right back on there, yeah. We all learned that lesson. We all learned that lesson. You got to take some licks. I bet you the ego has them has a lot of victories in jujitsu. Yeah, you know the ego has defeated more people in jujitsu than anybody else, more yes. than Hicks and Gracie. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. Because the ego's like, well, if you go in there today, you know, you know that guy might be there and he might tap you out because you haven't been trained. Like that's that happens legitimately. Yeah. People go, people literally have that conversation in their head and they go, I'm not going to train today. I'm just not yeah. going to go. And then, and then next week or the next day, you know what they're doing? Not going to go today. And it just builds up. You got to just bite the bullet, man. Yeah. The, the most common, I I don't know if this is what particularly what you meant, but let's say, whether you get a blue belt or whatever your belt is, right? Let's say you take a month off or two months, months off. And then you're like, shoot, if I go back tomorrow, I'm going to be a step behind and everyone's going to know that I'm not really that good of a blue belt. 
And then you're like, so I just won't go. Then <sighs> another month passed. Now you're like even one step in your mind mentally, right? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, everyone in class, they don't care. Yeah. They don't care at all. <laughs> in fact, they're happy to see you, to yeah, be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. They're like, oh, you're back. Okay, you know, whatever. They want to tap you out. Yeah, yeah, but that's always the case, though. Yeah, that's, that's the true. thing. Nothing changed. So there. that doesn't yet, nothing changed. There's a girl in my gym now, and she, when we first started, we were both white belts at Gustavo's, and she was a beast, and I love training with her. She's just such a fun partner, because she's tough and she's hard, but she's a good partner. And I started doing what I do, which is I'm in and out, and she just stayed with it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm watching her on social all the time. She's competing now, she's dominating, and she's just a force of nature. (laughs) And she has just been so consistent in the last two and a half years, where I've been like, Hard, going hard for a month and then out for two months and no one sees me and there it's total ego because I like look at her and I'm like man like we were at the same level two years ago and yep. now she I mean she's a purple belt and she yep. could just she she toys with me you yep. know I'm surviving the entire round but every time I show up she is like hey girl what's up like where you been like how mm-hmm. you doing and she gives me you know she's just so polite and it, it again it's just like it brings me back to no one cares. No. They're just glad you're here. Yeah, that's how egocentric we all are. We oh, all yeah. think when we walk in the gym that everyone's Everyone, looking yeah. at us. <laughs> just like, you know, you, oh, I'm going to look stupid if I do this. It's like, no, yeah. I'm going to look, if, from a leadership perspective, like, oh, I'm going to look stupid if I ask a question or if I admit that I don't know how to conduct this project. If I admit that, everyone's going to think, no. People be like, oh, yeah, cool, no big deal. Here's, you know, like, yeah. just. Welcome back. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> welcome back. No big deal. We move on. And how many marathons have you run? Have you just run one? No, um, I did. Bunch, right? Yeah, I really, I hate, I hate running. Evidently, <laughs> <laughs> I hate running. Uh, so no one should be impressed with me. My first, my first uh, marathon, you know, Flynn did it, and he didn't train. I trained hard, like hardcore, and we ran the Marine Corps Marathon, and it was it was for Team Brendan. So this is a year after he died. So I'm like, all right, I gotta like step my game up, and I trained for this thing. And you know, Flynn finishes, and I think he finished in like 4:10 or something without without training mm-hmm. at all. And he was like disappointed in himself, and he's like, "Man, this thing is humbling. Like I had old people beating me, I had like women beating me." And he's like thinking he, you know, it was just a humbling experience. And I'm like, "Hey, I, I just finished with the guy that juggled the entire race. <laughs> like I don't want to talk about humbling." <laughs> so um, I did that first marathon, and it was awful. Uh, and then somehow I just kept getting trapped. Um, you know, I met Jen Tarantino. She had never run a marathon. And and I was like, well, okay, I guess we could train for one. And so we started training for one, and I ran another one with her. And then I started getting my dad uh, involved in running, which was just a, an incredible journey. Because I, I asked my dad to run this, like, Tough Mudder. And he's like, Jamie, I haven't run a mile in, like, 40 years. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I was like, um, I was like, you could do it. Like, we'll just, we'll run, you know, we'll start with a mile. And so I go and I pick him up and he's wearing jeans. Yeah. He's wearing jeans to this run. Hell yeah. Uh, and like he's running and my dad's kind of tall and lanky and he's running and I'm watching him from the side view like, oh my, what is going on? Because you could tell he doesn't know how to run. Like his, it just was not a good situation. And we ran a mile. He thought he was going to die. Um, and then I showed up two days later. I bought him like legitimate like pants and a, a running shirt. And um, we go and we run another mile. And then we run a mile and a half and then two miles. And we just start building up. And we do this Tough Mudder, which was 10 miles, but obstacles every half mile. So you don't have to run you know, in, enti- in its entirety. And he finishes it. And you could see this sense of like total accomplishment. 
And so then I was like, hey, what what if we did a half marathon? And so we did a half marathon and the entire race, he's like, don't ask me to do a full. I'm not going to do a full. Mm-hmm. And then we finished the half and he's watching the full marathoners come across and he got that little like, hmm. <laughs> so I waited a month, just enough time to forget how bad the half was. <laughs> and then we started training for a full. So we did our first full together. Then we did a second one together. And then he, I moved to Virginia Beach and he started training with my niece, his granddaughter. So awesome. So he ended up running another marathon with, I ran that one, but I only did the half uh, with them. And my, he ran another marathon with my, with my uh, niece, his granddaughter. So with everything you've got going on, kids, work, running a company, you still make time to do jujitsu. You make time to stay in shape. I think that's just freaking such a mandatory thing to do with life. You, I get so much more accomplished if I am taking care of myself. And I figured out a long time ago, the best way for me to be disciplined in taking care of myself and doing those things is by helping someone else along the way. So all of the running with my dad, like I would not, I am not that disciplined to get up and go train for that marathon on my own. But I was trying to help my dad accomplish something. And I was getting time with my dad that you don't really get as an adult. I mean, hours a week running with him. Uh, And then even with Jen, like when we started working out and we trained for our first marathon, it was helping her. Like she had never done anything anything like that. So I think I figured out that in order for me to succeed in my desire to want to continue to be healthy and do these challenging things, I've got to be helping someone else accomplish it because I'm way better when it comes to helping someone else than just trying to do it on my own. And when left to my own devices, I'm actually not that great. (laughs) So so, uh, I have to get creative and like create these scenarios where I'm like, hey, let's run a race. And now I'm in charge of helping this other person. And that becomes a motivator for me. It's interesting how it's so much harder to let someone else down than it is to let yourself down even like uh, Jordan Peterson has one of those one of his uh, rules is like treat yourself as if you were someone that you were trying to help yeah. right it's that same thing like you wouldn't not show up to run with your dad but if it was just you man you're in that rack Jamie Cochran mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like it's raining outside I think I'll take today off and my dad is one of those he's the best training partner because you give him a schedule of like, here's the things we're gonna run and here's how many miles and what days and he sticks to it. He's crossing every single training run off mm-hmm. that schedule. So you're not getting out of the seven mile run or the nine mile run on a Saturday because he's like, what time are we meeting? We gotta cross this off. So he's the best training partner to have. Find someone who's like sticks to the plan. Sticking to the plan. Um, where are we at? Does that get us up to speed, Jamie Cochran? To today? To today? Yeah. Are we there? I think we're there. You think we're there? Echo Charles, you yeah. got any questions? Yeah. Uh, rewind a little bit back to when you were in L.A. You said the music industry wasn't yeah. good for you, for women, for I what just, did you say? For young women, it is a difficult environment to be in. Why There's a, just a lot of pressure. There's a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of self-doubt, a lot of insecurities that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, you know, women already... You know, you have daughters, you've probably seen this. And I've tried to explain this to my husband, but there comes a point in, I think I would dare to say, and I know we're not making generalizations here, but I would dare say most women get to a point in their life where the world has convinced them they're not good enough, they're not pretty enough, they're not smart enough, they're not skinny enough. And they have all these fears and insecurities and they have to 
work through that. And so that environment amplifies that Mm -hmm. significantly. And so um, I just think it's, you know, I have a daughter and I think about her and how do I prepare her to the best of my ability to manage what the world will someday tell her. And my husband, Flynn is always like, no, 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 that that won't happen with Charlie. I'm like, it will happen with Charlie. And Mm -hmm. we just need to prepare her for that. And I got into that environment and realized very quickly that that's where I kind of reconciled with what the world was telling me Mm -hmm. and that I needed to get out of that in order to maintain my sense of security and comfortability in who I was. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that goes into the conversations we've had before about ecosystems and you get into an ecosystem where it's just that's what you think the world is and that's not oftentimes that's not very healthy whether that ecosystem is the music industry in LA or whether that ecosystem is the dang uh, Ivy League college in Boston or whether that ecosystem is some business that you're in or being in the military there's people that you know they're in that military ecosystem and they they're stuck in it and they're doing things that don't make sense in their life but they're trying to preserve their their status in that ecosystem and people that applies to all of them music anything they have you get in there and you're you start judging yourself against this world and you're doing things that actually don't make sense for you as a human being but you're trying to maintain your status inside that ecosystem and it's just absolutely terrible and it's very difficult that's what that's what I find very impressive about your story is a lot of these things people don't realize like what you just said you were in an ecosystem that was not healthy and you as a 20 year old girl said oh I can see that this ecosystem is bad I need to get out of it that's a very challenging thing to do that's a very challenging thing to do most people they get in those ecosystems they double triple and quadruple down inside those ecosystems that's what normally happens so another great lesson for life is that's why we talk about detachment you gotta detach all the way outside of that ecosystem. And, Cause that's what happens, people detach from where they're at but they're still inside the ecosystem. And they think, well, uh, uh, I just need to do more. I need to do, 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 this, do this even harder. And it just doesn't work out. So be careful of that. Look around the world. Look around the world. And you, no matter where you are, you're in some kind of ecosystem. You're in Silicon Valley and you think you need to be in the startup. Or you're in the college and you think you need to do the good uh, internship with the big tech company. Or you're in the AAA baseball and you think you need to do, like you can just pick the, the ecosystem and if you if your heart's not there and you're doing it anyways, that's where, that's where it hurts. And some people, that's what they're into, which I get. You know, I get it. But if your heart's not really there and you're doing it for the wrong reasons, it's not gonna work out good. So watch out for that. Anything else, Echo Charles? No, that's it. I'll just say, I think that's what I learned when I was young by doing so many different things. Mm -hmm. One of the benefits of not honing in on one thing is I never got stuck in any of those ecosystems. Mm -hmm. I had exposure to different people, different perspectives, and going from sport to sport and music and plays and different, I just had exposure to so much more. And I can easily sit here at this table and say like, oh, I I recognize this and I made a choice. But the reality is in the moment that wasn't happening. It wasn't as clear. I had a lot of people around me that I could look to and say, you know what? I 
what do I want for my life? Do I want that or do I want that? So I was lucky because I was at least aware enough to recognize that there were things that I wanted and I I saw what those people were doing. And I was like, all right, I need to go down that path to get to that. And so I never got stuck in that ecosystem because of the people around me. But that's easy to do now looking back through this lens of ownership of the mistakes or the choices that I made. But in the moment, those things were not instinctual. Like it wasn't like I got there and I was like, I need to get out of this. Like, no, I sat there for a while and dabbled in that and then realized looking up and out, you know what? I don't actually want this. This doesn't like, this isn't who I want to be. So let me, let me look elsewhere. And I think growing up doing a million things, I was more comfortable saying, let me pivot and try something different. Yeah, which this was foreshadowing conversation. I asked you three hours ago or whatever, like, wait a second, you were training gymnastics four hours a day, six days a week. That's an ecosystem, and it's a strong ecosystem. And there's people in there that, there's people in there, if you, if you ask a 12-year-old gymnast, like, what is the ultimate thing to do in human life, they'd be like, compete in the Olympics and gymnastics. And there's a whole pack of them. And so you, at age whatever, 13, 14, looked around and said, oh, that's cool, but I actually wanna do other things too. Like, that's, that's an amazing uh, ability for you to have, and it's a huge lesson learned for, for anybody that's listening. Jamie, any closing thoughts? I just want to express in this moment an opportunity of gratitude to you for the opportunity to be here at Echelon Front. What we get to do here is like nothing I could have ever imagined. And the journey we just walked through, I'm always so uncomfortable talking about myself. I'd so much rather hone in on the principles and what we teach in these leadership lessons. But the truth is the reason I feel that way is because these things have legitimately changed my perspective and my ability to take on problems and come up with solutions. So if there's anyone out there that's, you know, listening to the, this podcast or wanting to, to understand these principles, stop hesitating. Stop making those excuses and just start doing it and you will see your life change ahead of you as far as what you can handle and what you can manage and what you can solve. Well, I think what's awesome is, you know, my mind being open to the idea that the way you have a women's jujitsu class, you need to have a women's assembly. And and I've also, I have talked to you about this. Look, there's a 13-year-old boy right now, and a 16-year-old boy, and a 14-year-old boy, and they can look at Uncle Jake, way the warrior kid. They can look at me and be like, oh yeah, when I grow up, that's what I wanna be like. I wanna be like that guy. He looks strong, he looks tough, that's what I wanna be like. And there's a lot of examples like that. There's a lot of guys out there that would that that you could take a 13 year old kid and say, "Hey, you should you should try and behave like that guy. That guy's setting a pretty good role model. Emulate that guy." And I think for girls, and like I said, I have three daughters. I don't know that there's that many out there. I don't know that there's that many legitimate role models for young women, for young girls to look at and say, oh, that seems like a really good path that that individual went down. And I, I talked to these, I told you that months ago. I said, you know, I'm looking at my daughters and I'm like, who, who are they looking up to? What are they, who are they seeing on, well, I see who they see. You see it on Instagram, that's where you see it. You see it on, on TikTok, you see it on Snapchat. Like that's what they're getting inundated with. And I know that's not healthy. And look, there's plenty of bad examples for young boys as well, but I think for you for you to be an example for, I mean, for anybody of any age, 
but also especially for a 13-year-old girl right now, a 15-year-old girl right now, a 20-year-old girl right now that's looking around going, hey, why am I in this ecosystem? Do I want to be a part of this? What can I actually do? What are my limitations? And I think you're living proof that there really are no limitations, that you can go out, you can take ownership of your life, you can take ownership of your world, and you can make things happen. So thank you for sharing all of that with us. Um, thanks for sharing those lessons learned. Thanks for also, honestly, uh, and most, maybe not most important, but thanks for your service as a, as a military spouse. The families don't get enough credit. I can guarantee you that your husband, who I know, was less worried when he was on deployment than you were. <laughs> like the, the families and the spouses are the ones that have to worry. So thanks for your service there. And then at Echelon Front, I don't know what the numbers are right now, but our growth has been phenomenal. And you are the person with the oar in your hand paddling and making this boat move. So thanks for everything you do. Uh, for us at Echelon Front and the lives that are impacted by by these principles and that company. So thank you. Well, thank you for setting setting the tone. Right on. Um, Echo Charles. Yes. Speaking of, um, you know, trying to set the tone, trying to live a good example, what do you think we should be doing? Jamie thinks we should be doing jujitsu. We're going to be doing jujitsu. <laughs> well, Jamie thinks we should be doing kind of everything. Yeah, which she's I respect. Doing everything. You got to do it all. I respect <laughs> it. Yeah, it's true. Actually, you make a good point, man, because you don't really think about that, like that ease of, like if you committed to, and how you said gymnastics, right, Jocko? Right. Where it's like, okay, if you're in gymnastics, you're like, yeah, I'm going to go to the Olympics or whatever. And then you get starts to get hard and be like, man, I'm, I'm not even progressing as fast and all this stuff. And then you kind of consider, okay, if I don't do this, what am I going to do? And if the answer is kind of nothing versus Jamie's over here, well, about, you know, 900,999 other things, it's easier to kind of make that, make an informed decision, you know, on yep. your next move. Bro, you want to talk about dream killer? Mm-hmm. I, I went and talked to um, eighth grade students the other day. And I, w- you know, I was asking boys, well, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? 50% of them, I would say, named some kind of professional athlete. Football, mm-hmm. baseball, basketball, whatever, 50%. Yeah. So I took the first one, second one. By the fifth one, I was just turning into, ang- not, not angry, but reality check Jocko. I'm like, what's your backup plan? Do you know what percentage of people actually make it into the NBA? It's a tiny number, and you look like you're not gonna be that tall. What's your backup plan? I had to. And you know what? The thing is, no one's telling these kids this. No one's telling these kids this. And by the way, how much basketball can you practice? Tell me, Echo Charles, how, how much basketball can you practice? How many hours a day can you practice? I think it caps out at, uh, at about 10. 10 hours. So you got 10 hours, you're gonna sleep for eight. Yep. That's 18 hours. You got six hours left over mm-hmm. to figure out what your backup plan is gonna be. So even if you completely committed 10 hours a day mm-hmm. to making it into the NBA, you can still have six hours a day to figure out what your backup plan is gonna be. That's what I'm talking about. So you, you gotta have, have a backup plan. You have to have a backup plan. You have to have a backup plan. Because you don't know, you do not know what you wanna be at eighth grade. I'm that's sorry. Too. Like there's a very few people, like the Dave Burks of the world, that's like, I'm gonna be a pilot and go be a pilot. <laughs> Most of us go the route that I did where I'm like, I know what I wanna be, and then like very quickly was like, actually, let me pivot. Yeah. And you have to have a backup plan. And mm. and you're right, no one's talking to kids about that now, nowadays. Yeah. It's. I realize that the kids, they don't connect what's happening right now to their future. 
They don't can make those connections. If they're lucky, their parents are like, hey, get straight A's. You don't really know why, but maybe you're gonna get, you know, uh, $2 for every A that you get, and that ends up being 10 bucks, and so you can kind of relate to that, so you work hard. Most kids aren't like, oh, I'm, I know what I'm gonna do to get straight A's, that's gonna be a good college, it's gonna be in a program, I'm gonna get a doctorate in this. Like, that's not most kids. And I get it that there's some kids that are out there that are like that, cool, they're not gonna have any issues unless they overcommit to an ecosystem that they can't quite get into because there's people that their goal in life is to get into an Ivy League school and when they don't get in because it's freaking competitive they don't know what to do they break down they have problems but that's what we have to do is you have to broaden your mind you have to just well one of my friends actually our friend Brian Sargent he his he asked his one of his kids um, he was telling his kid like you need to study hard you need to get good grades and he's like, why do I need to good grades? good grades? And he says, well, what do you want to do when you get older? And his, his kid says, I don't know. And he said, exactly. Exactly. And when you don't know and you get bad grades, you're just closing doors. You're just closing doors on yourself. You're closing doors on your opportunities. So when you can maintain good grades, you can try a bunch of different sports, you can behave well, you can not get in trouble. Like those are the things that are gonna open the most amount of doors for you that you can capitalize on somewhere down the line because as Jamie just pointed out, you don't know what you're gonna do, what you wanna do when you're in sixth grade or seventh grade or eighth grade or 12th grade sometimes. Like, or 24. <laughs> yeah, I mean we just talked to another guy who's, who's at West Point in the engineering program and he's like, yeah, second year at West Point in the engineering program, I realized I don't want to be an engineer. Like, that's, that's crazy. So there's a 20-year-old individual that's in a military academy that is, doesn't know what he wants to do. So keep your options open. The way you keep your options open is by working hard. So make that but happen. It's difficult nowadays because there's a trend now, especially with sports, where like you're going to get your kid into the sport at three years old, and that's going to be your only for- focus. And they're yeah. going to go to the competition and the travel team, and they're going to focus so much on that one sport. Well, what happens in high school when they change their mind? Yeah. Or as an adult, they get injured and yeah. they can't do it, or they don't make it. Yeah. And parents put that on their kids. Yeah. And uh, I learned from my parents' example that I'm going to let my kids, they want to, Nico decided six months ago he wanted to try lacrosse. I was like, like, sure. And he started playing lacrosse and he loves it. Mm-hmm. Cool. cool. Sounds good. And he may decide he wants to continue through high school or he may decide he wants to change his mind. But just give him exposure to as much as you can. Yeah, it's going to open up their adaptability yep. as well. And adaptability is such a key component of survival in life. You know, the, the animals that survive are the ones that are most adaptable. Yep. The humans that do the best are the ones that are most adaptable. That's what makes special operations good. So we're good at adapting to the situation that's on the ground. So raise your kids so that they're adaptable. Not so that they can do one random thing, like, you know, hit a ball with a stick or do a double back handspring, which actually that has come some components. That's actually pretty cool. It's a good thing to know how to do. But it also translates really well to a bunch of different things. But back handsprings? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just the athletic capability, the explosiveness, the flexibility. Like, there's a lot of positive things that come out of that. And there's positive things that come out of hitting a ball with a stick too, right? Hand-eye coordination. But let's not make that the sole focus, as you just pointed out. Let's not make that the sole focus. In the .001% that they have the genetic capability, the timing, the injury prevention, to have every star in the galaxy line up that they can get to the NBA, the NFL, or whatever. So just be careful. 
I'm my dream killing monologue is complete. Yes, sir. But we are staying physically capable. That's what we're doing on all fronts. Yep. Yes, yep. you know, um, you know, longevity sake, capability sake, all that stuff. With that, we do need fuel. You need fuel, clean fuel. You need Jocko fuel. You need Jocko Jamie, fuel. what are you drinking right now? Chocolate milk. Chocolate milk. How tasty is that? Tasty chocolate milk and orange go. That's a daily for me. That's your daily go to. Yep. When do you have a When do you have a go? Usually for me, and I know this is way late in the day for you. It's usually like one o'clock for me. When is Academy? It's right. It's right at the start so of do academy. You have, yeah, yeah. So it's like I, one or two o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. I like yeah. to have one around the academy. That's pretty normal for me. Or like if I'm doing a pr- presentation, I like to get that go together. And I'll be honest with you. And I don't know if this is cheating. I don't know what the law is about this. But lately, I've been having a go on my way to jujitsu. That's sort of that's sort of my thing right now. And I'm starting to feel like it's hyping me up in the, like a real kind of way. <laughs> I've seen the videos lately. You yeah. look hyped up. Yeah. I'm hyped up. Hot and then stuff. when do you have a mulk? In the morning or post jujitsu. Post jujitsu. Yeah. So that's I don't eat breakfast very often. So either. mulk is like a really quick, easy way to, to get some fuel in the morning. What I'm stoked about mulk is you can drink it on an empty stomach and not like have your stomach go into a rebellion, <laughs> which can happen. If you drink like milk, regular milk. It's possible. Bro, you might get a rebellion on your hands. You might get some some, some reactions that you're not going to like. Mm-hmm. So we got Mulk. We got Go. We got Jocko Fuel. JockoFuel.com. It's true. Go check it out. Yep. Um, For all elements of capability. Yeah. You run into a roadblock physically, boom, Jocko Fuel's there. Save the day. Got you covered True on. story. You can get this stuff at Wawa. Bottom right. Because, look, we're under some pressure from the right. from You the know what bottom right means? Is that the Wawa like placement that's now? Where we're, yeah, yeah. That's where we're at. Wawas okay. are big out where I am, oh, and I know. everyone's complaining about it. And yeah. I've asked people. I asked someone. I'm like, hey, where? You know, what's up with the Jocko Go? And the guy at the front, he's like, everyone keeps asking me that. Like, he he doesn't have an answer yeah. either. But you got to find them. They're hidden. Yeah, they're usually bottom right. Yeah, the answer is that some of the big uh, beverage empires came in and and bought our slots. Which look, they're running a business at Wawa. Good good for them. Um, but just know that your people are out there and they want that go. Yeah. <laughs> but you put them in Harris Teeter. So anyone yeah. on the East Coast, okay. like now, I don't have to go to Wawa. I don't have to deal with Wawa anymore. I can go to Harris Teeter go. and get the get the whole the whole kit. So Harris Teeter, Wawa, if you can find it. Vitamin Shop, GNC, by the way. Mm-hmm. GNC. Like, that's nationwide. Vitamin Shop's nationwide. Military Commissaries, if you're in the military. Hannaford, Dash Stores, Wakefern, ShopRite, H-E-B, and Tejas. You people in Tejas, thank you. Thank you. I know it's Leif and JP for sure. (laughs) (laughs) They're going hot. But there's no way they could buy as much uh, Go and Jocko Fuel as H-E-B's got and is getting and is selling. So everyone down in Texas, thank you for going getting after it there at H-E-B. We're in Myers. We're in Harris Teeter, as you just pointed out. Lifetime Fitness, Shields. Just went to Shields. That's a badass store. Shields. We went to Shields. They got the whole line at Shields. They're fired up. So, also, if you got a gym, if you got a jujitsu academy, and you want to have Jocko Fielder, you got a little CrossFit box, you got some other kind of fitness scenario going on, and you want to sell this stuff, go to JF Sales at JockoField.com. We'll get you that wholesale account. And I'll be honest with you, you know, 
you kind of become a little bit of a crack dealer. <laughs> I don't know if it's illegal or not, but you give someone a can, they're good. They're back tomorrow. They're back. They're back. They're training. They're getting stronger. They're getting better. It's helping your whole scenario. So yeah, check it out. Jockofield.com. Also, originusa.com. So origin, right? All these, uh, what, jeans, boots, uh, rash guards, geese, all this stuff. How is this helping us? How is this helping America? Are you talking about you want to, Improve the national security for your country for your children and your grandchildren. Is that what you want to do? You're telling me that you want to actually help us win Globally against tyrannical empires. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah get yourself a pair of jeans from originusa.com Because we're bringing manufacturing back to America right now And the best hoodies on the market and the best hoodies out there yeah, this is how good the hoodies are. So I use, uh, so I have the OG one, you know, the yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. heather, like it's yeah, ribbed. It has yeah, two holes for me, like pulling it down over the just the years yeah. and years. You know, when you put it on, you pull it down. So yeah. it has two holes in here. Dang. Sweaty. I use it only for working out. Okay. So it's not a wear around anywhere else. I'm like that too. Yeah. I got a hoodie just for working out. I have two of them. My, wa- my wife. Trying to one up me. Takes them and wears them. I my workout you. thing. And you know, like you know, let's face it. Usually, mm-hmm. wives not going to wear the sw- workout gear, yeah. but they're so good. It's like it's the most comfortable hoodie in this yeah. whole household. The so, best. Boom. I have one in every color: the, ho- yeah. the the heavy and the kilo. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So all that stuff made in America: jeans, boots, hunt gear. We got the the line coming out for training. Have you you, you haven't gotten any? Have you got yours yet? RTX. The RTX line. No, you tell me. You don't have it yet because it's been sent to one of our operators here that's okay. going to deliver it to you right. but it's super good to go like i'm so stoked I, you know, this is one of the first things i asked pete for was like hey man we need we need to make like a workout workout clothing this is what i do every day every day i work out that's what i need every day and so we got it it's, it's beautiful so rtx line coming out all made in america 100 percent. so you can actually help Same. your great 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 grandchildren live in freedom that's what you can do Yep. OriginUSA.com, go get it. It's true. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store, by the way. So, yeah, we're representing on this path. We're doing everything. We're doing jujitsu marathons, as the case may be. I'm not doing a marathon. Mm. But nonetheless, I am representing on the path. <laughs> Discipline <laughs> equals freedom. It's true. So, you have the shirt locker as part of the Jocko Store. And yes. my dad has been a longtime subscriber. And he wears, it's the only shirts he wears. Yep. And he's on a road trip right now to Virginia Beach. And yep. he's, Two times now on this road trip and stopped. People be like, "Hey, Jocko, yeah!" yeah and like yeah, he just yeah, loves yeah. it. He's like in the game. He is <laughs> yeah. repping hard. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He's My representing man. on the path. Yep. On the path. Quite literally. Yeah. 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 Shirt locker. New shirt every month. Different kind of design. Same path. Same representation. New design. So it's a good one. He's super. JockoStore.com. He's super proud of that. Bro, that's a good one. Bro. It's he's a good super one. proud of that. Echo waits this entire podcast, yeah. and then like you pass it off, and he's like, "Now's my time." Uh, no, you <laughs> don't even. Up. You don't even know how right you are. If there's you a can po- see him getting antsy at if, the end, like it's you. almost my turn. If there's a that's podcast where he doesn't say very much, I have to like brace for it because I know he's gonna get in there and just start. I can't stop it, you know. And and so he's gonna talk. You know, we just gotta contend with it. Yeah, you started you know? to close this out, and you could see him like. Was, <laughs> his face changed. He started checking his notes. He was like, you know, yeah, yeah getting everything right. He's like, I'm ready. Yeah, right. Get in the mental spot there. Amen. I like that. That's good good observation. That's so that's so good observation. It's yeah. so right too. I see you over there straightening your paper. <laughs> Just getting ready to 
talk. That's a fair assessment. Yeah. I shouldn't contribute to this. I really should have your back on this, Echo. I'm yes, sorry. you're correct again. Because you two, you're you two correct. both experience uh, yes. workplace hostilities from me. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're going to do a podcast at I, some point, just sharing our, yeah. our shared trauma. Yeah, we'll roll it out. Working yeah. for you. I know, I know we were on some group text with Echelon Front, and I don't know what you did. I forget. But I wrote back like to the group test, text to you, trust was broken. <laughs> no, I can tell you what I did. What did you do? It was like a call, and I was traveling, and I didn't set someone up as the host on on Zoom so no one could join the Zoom call. And like I was like, hey guys, sorry, next time I'll make sure that I add some other people so you guys can get on the Zoom call. And you were like, trust has been broken. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Do you see how it is, Echo Charles? Oh, yeah. yes, I do. And here's the thing. I I see what you're doing. That's the thing. See what you're doing. Like he'll go for like the kind of low blow, not like full obvious <laughs> low blow because it'd be too it's obvious, so you know? Yeah, the <laughs> subtle low blows. Here's what he'll do to me. He'll be like, hey, you want to come to this thing or should I call Carrie? Uh. So it's like, no, I gotta go. I gotta go because they can't be like, yeah, like basically count on someone else, you know? It's like that can still. So I see what you're doing. Echo I and I link up no once problem. a month and we just have a support session. Yeah. We just talk through the, the abuse. Yeah. So beneficial. There you go. Um, Nonetheless, right. you you are correct. I'm ready. Hey, look, if people want to hear about the shirt locker, who's gonna, who's going to tell them about the shirt locker? Yeah. You? Speaking of encouragement, he doesn't need any more encouragement to talk, Jamie. <laughs> Just FYI for the our people are are not are not appreciative. Uh, subscribe to that. Subscribe to the podcast. Um, subscribe to Jocko Underground. We do that podcast once a week. Generally speaking, we answer questions from you. We also talk about Jocko podcast adjacent topics. They're very focused on your moving through life in an efficient manner. So check that out. Go to YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jocko Podcast, Origin USA, YouTube channel. Jocko Fuel has a YouTube channel. Echelon Front has a YouTube channel. So we got all kinds of YouTube channels. Go subscribe to those things, check them out. Good, good, good information, psychological warfare. That's been around for a while. Get you through those moments of weakness. Yeah, well, there Still you go. Uh, Flipside Canvas, Dakota Meyer, books. I've written a bunch of books. You guys know the gig. Get them if you if you haven't gotten them yet. Especially kids' books. Look, you might be you you might be uh, 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 beyond help. Yep. You're not, but you might think you are. But I tell you what, the neighbor you have with the two little rugrats running around getting crazy, they could use Uncle Jake in their is Uncle Jake in the, in the lives of your children. Oh yes. We love Uncle Jake. Yeah, the war- way of the warrior kid is like the best thing you can do for your kids because all the things we teach about extreme ownership are in this book and teaching it in a way that kids can resonate with. Yeah, and for whatever reason, again, Jamie Cochran's the unicorn that obeyed her par- her parents <laughs> with like religious <laughs> zeal. Most kids are not like that. Mm-hmm. Most kids are gonna be like, oh, Oh, I'm not gonna listen to my dad. What does my dad possibly know? You know, my son, when he was 10 years old and we're doing jujitsu, and I said, hey, you need to move your hips a little bit further over on that arm lock. And he's like, no, you don't. <laughs> I'm like, bro, Straight I've been doing jujitsu no, twice as long as you've been alive. And now you're telling me I don't know how to do an arm lock? But Uncle Jake, the kids listen to Uncle Jake all day. And he's putting out some good word, let's face it. So there you go. Dude, adults can read Wave the Warrior Kid and learn a bunch. Oh, I know. <laughs> I love those books. Yeah, the the simple, straightforward methodology in Wave the Warrior Kid is definitely, it hits. It lands, as yeah. Michael Charles likes to say. So we get a bunch of books. Check out those books. Echelon Front, you heard a little bit about it today. Jamie Cochran, the chief operating officer there. What do we do at Echelon Front? 
what do we not do at Echelon Front? We teach leadership. We do a bunch of different things. We do high-level consulting, long-term programs with clients and helping them put together leadership development programs within their company, train the trainer, sustainment efforts. We do one-off like keynotes and workshops and different things that we can come in and help your team understand and get a baseline understanding these principles. And then obviously we have the events and uh, experiences that we do, the musters, the field training exercises, the battlefield reviews, the council, now the women's assembly. And then we got a bunch of free stuff and a bunch of stuff on the academy. So if you don't have time, you don't have maybe the money to come to one of those events or to have us come out and do training for your team, you can join the academy. And there's a plethora of free courses and then very affordable courses you can take to get really uh, de- dialed in on learning these principles more effectively. Real quick, yeah. what is a trivia question, Echelon Front style? What year was the first Echelon Front video created? Ooh, I know. But I don't know the wait, year. Wait, but do you I, think? Well, wait, hold on, hold on. First one. Hold on, because early in the day, I made videos for Echelon Front. Day. Okay, all right. Yeah, I'll I'll pull out my, uh, <laughs> it's so bad. If you saw it now, you'd be like, what the heck? But I made a video from like very early on. It was like 2014. I went with you guys to Denver and I took some footage on my phone and I edited it in like some, it, it was not good. Nice. Back in the day, it felt fine. Yeah, but I mean, the story. our first website I designed and created, I used Wix. And, and yeah, then you good. came along and you stepped up our game with video and website. And sure. You did a bunch of stuff for sure. us. Sure. So I don't remember. Yeah, so <laughs> instrumental. I don't remember. <laughs> Whatever, bro. <laughs> I don't remember the first time you made a video, though. First video for Echelon Front, Jocko. Yeah. What's your guess? The, Estimate. I know you remember the, the video. Yeah, the video. I don't know what the time frame was, but I did a video. I did a leadership training. I don't even know if actually I don't know if Echelon Front existed yet. Yep. It might not have existed yet. I did a leadership training video for a company, and Echo filmed it. And so the, you do win. And like the, it was before 2010. Yeah. Okay. It was actually me and Sarah, by the way. Remember? What was she in here? Yeah, she. We were doing. She was doing like help. Was she, it in this room? In the, on the mats. Justice. What well, What was the video? The video was for a teachers association. Yeah, no, I remember. Okay, it then was it was the same one. I thought we filmed. I didn't think we. I thought we filmed that in one of these. Cl- like around here. Nope. On the mats in there before Echelon Front existed. Yeah. Uh, but I revisited that maybe like a year and a half ago and it, it's all Echelon Front stuff. Yeah. Like literally like to the language, everything. It was be, it was before Echelon Front existed because soon after that he was like, hey, we need a logo that, you know, kind of embodies this and like this. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll come up with something. He sends me a <laughs> sketch made on like Microsoft. I still have that too, by the way. Yeah. I'm going to make a shirt with that logo on it. Watch. Dude, that's I'm Only I'm going to wear it. Only me and K-Dog going to wear it. What do you We're mean? Like, this is the OG no, make that into a shirt locker shirt, dude. People underestimate or don't realize how artistic Jago is. He's actually quite artistic. I get a lot of little drawings when he's trying to explain yeah. something and like yeah. he wants to show me and I'm like, oh, that's actually a really good drawing. Uh, yeah, and by the way, the, the Echelon Front yeah. logo, well, there's, there's a difference here because you're talking about Microsoft Draw yeah, or whatever like super stupid hard. ass yeah. program I was on <laughs> trying to do this thing. But if you give me a pen, I'll do okay. Okay, actually, you're right about that. There's, yeah, okay. Okay, actually, you're right. You're right. After but here's the deal. So we get done, we record this video, and it's like an hour long. It's a keynote. And it's, you know what you pointed out earlier, the principles that your husband had written down when he heard me talk about combat leadership for the first time, and you, oh, it says cover, move, simple, prioritizing. Yeah, it's the same stuff. So I was doing this for some uh, company, and the, the, audio was off sync. I look like a bad a bad dub 
And I go, hey, I'm like, hey, Echo, like the my mouth is moving and no words are coming out. And then my mouth isn't moving and words are coming out. What it doesn't. And you know what he told me? He was like, no, 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 it's fine. He was yep. trying to tell me it was okay. Yep. Why were you doing sure. that? Because, okay, well, this is literally what happened. So the thing was, first off, that's my first video that I got paid for ever in my whole life. So How much did I like, pay you? I, I forget. Mm-hmm. Um, 50 bucks. I was like, bucks. <laughs> no, we like split it or something like that. Okay. Like the, the, right. the gig. Yeah, you were, you were hooking it up. But um, it was because the video was so long and I didn't use any like tools or, or no visual aids, nothing. I just was going by my own eyes. And you know how you get hypnotized? <laughs> <laughs> he was calling out. We were going back and forth for like more than an hour, saying "Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not." For to, to the point where he literally came to my house to show me. Do you remember that? Yeah. He came over, See, and then we thing. found the one spot when he's like, "Hey, and you just gotta know." And he's doing this, and he's like, "Look," and he goes, "Ch." <laughs> Thus began the uh, what that caused the introduction of the slate. Yeah, the slate. So yes, Jocko, Jocko was correct. He had to drive all the way to my house to prove Your it. first video ever was 2010? For money, yes. Okay. Paid gig. But That's didn't incredible. You, didn't you, you did some, you did some uh, victory That was a, right after. That was oh, after. that was after. Yeah. Because those are, you know, he's got outtakes of me like 15, 16, 17 years ago. Still talking. Still shit. talking Still smack. Talking yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is, I remember that conversation about the timing being off. I was like, hey, I, I was kind of questioning myself, yeah. but then I'm watching it, I'm like, dude, this is one of those rare situations where the person that you're dealing with is actually just wrong. Like, they're yeah. just wrong. It's true. He well, was I was just, like all hypnotized, because you know, like you're like doing it for like an hour, I don't know. Was, had to drive to his house yeah. and sit down and show him that it was wrong. How to and sync that he audio. Was wrong. How to sync <laughs> audio, and I didn't know anything. <laughs> Anyways, we got the mission done. Mission, mission done. was accomplished. Mission accomplished. So that's what we're doing at Echelon Front. You can now uh, get trained by us. And and what you just mentioned, at the, so we have a, a, an online training thing, extremeownership.com. This is the thing, you may not realize this. If you're walking around right now, or you know, you know people that walk around and they think they're really good at fighting, but they never trained before. Right. And you can go watch a thousand videos of a blue belt in jujitsu beating up a, or tapping out a big giant muscle head guy that doesn't know how to fight. So there's some magic in jujitsu. It's the same thing with this stuff. It legitimately is like magic that you can bring into your life. Right now you don't even know that you don't know it. Right now you think you're like, oh, I know how to interact with my boss. I know how to deal with my subordinates. I know how to do that. Just like that big muscle head thinks he knows how to fight. He doesn't know how to fight. And he ends up losing. And, and looking around think it was a, an anomaly. Or thinking it was just because that guy, no. Your subordinate isn't reacting the right way, not because of your subordinates, because of you. Your boss isn't responding correctly to your influence because of you. So if you want to learn these magic tricks of leadership, go to extremeownership.com. You will then have power. And the cool thing is you take jujitsu, chances are you're not going to get in a street fight. But there's a 100% guarantee you're going to interact with your subordinate, your peers, and your bosses. That's 100% going to happen. So be ready. Learn the magic, and you'll be good to go. ExtremeOwnership.com. Go check it out. Get a class. Learn. If you want to help service members, active and retired, you want to help their families, Gold Star family, check out Markley's mom, Mama Lee. She's got an incredible charity organization. If you want to donate or want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And also, heroesandhorses.org. Right now, Micah Fink. What's the latest report, Echo Charles? 
Oh, it was a mountain lion. Two mountain lions. Two mountain lions. Yep. And then one of them lost its head, which now belongs to Micah Fink. Okay. So Micah Fink is at his present mountain camp with the head of one mountain lion on a pike that he killed with his bare hands, and he's eating the other one at the current time. So he's up there helping veterans find themselves in nature and find their path. So there you go. If you want to connect with us on the interg- on the interwebs, Jamie's on the gram. You're on the gram. You're at Jamie Lynn Cochran. You're on LinkedIn, at Jamie Cochran. Echelon Front's on there, by the way, at Echelon Front. You're not on Twitter, are you, Jamie? I'm not. How come I had to go on Twitter and you didn't? I remember your first tweet. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just, uh, I don't have enough time to manage social media accounts. Mm-hmm. I, and no one's following me for stuff. So we, we, we focus on Echelon Front. Echelon mm-hmm. Front has Twitter and mm-hmm. all those other things. So we focus efforts, efforts there. Do you put out word on Echelon Front social media? Is that you at any point? I used to be. Yeah. Now I don't. Yeah, no, the team does that. I get to like oversee a couple things. The the try this uh, instead of this try this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was me. Hell that yeah. was fun. Right yeah, <laughs> so those are I solid. Put, I, like I put that. those out. I mean, with help from the team, we got yeah. a lot of uh, responses from the team. So we put those out every Monday. But right the team does it all. Do you remember my first tweet? I do. What, did I write my first tweet? I wrote my first tweet. No, no. What happened? No, we you. Early on, we're like, hey, we don't need social media. Mm-hmm. Early on, you were like, hey, I, you know, I, I knew what you were doing. Before the book came out, you were not super excited about this idea of going on social media. And I ended up getting with some support from Jenna and Leif to get all your guys' stuff and just keep it on the back burner in case we someday needed it. And then you did the Tim Ferriss podcast and you called me and you're like, hey, Tim's twittering about me or like the way you described it I was like that's not accurate but uh and like I need to use it and so we had these accounts set up but we hadn't done anything with them and so I was like all right I showed you how to log in and we're on the phone and I remember being like no no you have to use the 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 hashtag it's the number sign and I'm like walking you through it like mm-hmm. line by line and you tweet it and then I call you back I'm like hey it was wrong you tagged the wrong person <laughs> and you're like okay hold on so you delete it and you retweet it and then I went to bed and I woke up the next day and you had like 200 followers and you had responded to a bunch and I never once again helped you with social media you just had it locked in it was like overnight you figured it out but that first tweet yeah I remember making it. some kind of mistake and you're like no yeah well because you like, sent oh. it and then I was looking and I was like he tagged the wrong person <laughs> I, I tagged like Timothy H. Ferros yeah. in, <laughs> in Kentucky. Yeah, but I only helped you once and then you had it and nobody touches your social. I think there's that's a surprise for a yeah. lot of people is that you don't have a team of people running your social media. You post and yeah. you maintain control yeah. over that. Tim Ferriss told me, he goes, you gotta do this Twitter thing. And I was like, I don't really you know, know how to do that stuff. And he goes, no, just, just get it and then I'll show you how to do it. He never showed me anything, Tim, if you're listening to this. But he did. Get, he told me like how effective it was for interacting with people, and it really is. You know, it's it is kind of overwhelming now because there's a lot of you know there's a lot of people that will reach out. But it is awesome to be able to just talk to somebody in Kentucky or in Bangladesh or in Australia. Boom, there they are. You can talk to them. It's pretty amazing. So we're on there. Jamie's on Instagram. If you want to follow Jamie on Instagram, she's also with Echelon Front. Uh, so that's where we're at. Echo and I are also on there. Echo's at Echo Charles. I'm at Jocko Willink. Just, just please, just watch out for the algorithm. Because it'll get you. 
Anything and else echo? Watch out for those fake accounts too. Oh yeah, those bots get you. The bots, the bots are crazy. Yeah. I can't believe there's they... like fake Jocko accounts that are like Jocko with like no seat. Like they oh, exist. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's why you got the verification. Yeah. But I don't have verification on Twitter anymore. Somebody oh, told me. That's your <laughs> People you gotta, like, you where's pay. your blue check mark? And so I got to figure that one out. Mm-hmm. It seemed like I just saw something the other day. Elon tweeted that you can have two-hour videos now. Oh, damn. If you're on. So that's that actually might move me in the direction of paying the money. You yeah, know? Functional. Because right now the limit's at like two minutes or something. And sometimes my videos be longer than that. So then I have to link you over to that. It's just <laughs> a pain. So that's it. Anything else? Echo Charles? Negative. Thanks, Jamie, for coming down. Thank you for having me. Jamie, anything else from you? No. Appreciate the opportunity. Right on. Awesome. Uh, thanks once again. Thanks for joining us. Um, it's awesome. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you, and I would say you don't know how much I appreciate you, but I actually think you know how much I appreciate you because my life depends on you. So, And I know you know that, so thank you for everything you do for us. And um, also, thanks for the military personnel out there tonight. And I want to say especially thanks to all the military spouses that are out there who take care of the home front so that your military warrior can take care of us. Thank you, you spouses, you families, you kids, you moms and dads of those service members. Thanks for your service and sacrifice tonight. And the same thing goes to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, all first responders. Thanks to you also, and again, thanks to your spouses. Thanks to your spouses, thanks to your kids who take care of your families so that you can take care of us and everyone else out there from a leadership perspective. Let's remember the underlying core of Colonel David Hackworth's attitude as a leader. He never did things for personal gain. He always did things for the unit and for the soldiers. For the soldiers. That's your team. You put the team first. That is universal in leadership. And the same way it worked for Hackworth in Korea, the same way it worked for Hackworth in Vietnam, it's the same way it works for Jamie, taking care of her team, putting the unit and putting her people first. And that is leadership. It's leadership on the battlefield, leadership in business, leadership with your family, leadership in your life. Put the team first. That is how you lead. And until next time, this is Jamie and Echo and Jocko. Out.